Hello, my name is Dominic Perry. I run the History of Egypt podcast, a story of the Nile Valley civilization. Pharaohs, queens, gods, priests, mummies, all that sort of thing. Even if you know nothing about ancient Egypt, there is a good chance that you have heard this story that I'm about to tell you. The story goes that in 1922, a group of archaeologists were working in the deserts west of a city called Luxor. This city, Luxor, was one of the ancient capitals of Egypt, and west of the city there is a great necropolis called the Valley of the Kings, where pharaohs built their tombs, hidden away from prying eyes, in order to protect their mummies and their treasures for eternity. The archaeologists in question were Mr. Howard Carter and his backer, Sir Lord Carnarvon. They'd been searching for many years for a lost tomb which they were sure was in the area, the tomb of Tutankhamun, also known as King Tut. Eventually they found the tomb, and they were overjoyed to discover that the tomb of King Tutankhamun was totally undisturbed. No one had robbed it. It was still filled with treasures and with the king's mummy. But before they came into the tomb, they encountered an inscription on the door. The door was made of bricks and had been covered with plaster, and on it the ancient tomb builders had stamped this warning. Death shall come on swift wings to one who disturbs the tomb of a pharaoh. The archaeologists, being men of science and rationalism, took no notice of the warning. They copied the inscriptions down because they were interesting from a historical standpoint. But of course, there could be no true meaning to those words. The Egyptians did not have magic that could last the sands of time. Or did they? Within a few months of opening the tomb, the backer of the expedition, Sir Lord Carnarvon, was dead. The story goes that he cut himself shaving and was quickly infected by malaria. This killed him. Allegedly, at the moment that he died in Cairo, his dog, back home in England, howled and dropped to the floor, dead. This has given rise to the legend of the curse of King Tutankhamun, a story you're about to hear. Have you heard the story of and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This is telling you stories of the old. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week, we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again, what our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. And welcome back to all of our amazing listeners. I'm so excited about this episode. We have been talking about doing this episode since the primordial soup was swilling around in our Just a Story brains. Just at the very, very beginning of this saga, we were like, what about, what about that? But before we get there... We do want to thank everybody from, for coming back. I want to thank everybody that's left ratings and reviews on iTunes. We've had a bunch recently. I want to take a special moment to give an affirmation to all of those people who have given affirmations to us. You've opened your heart and let in the light and the stories that we pretend to know about. Thank you all so much for being our sweet, sweet honeybees. You're the best and you are those honeybees knees. Meditate on that today. Bees knees. That is your charge. And that is your daily affirmation. Okay. <laughs> so we don't 
bunch of people to thank, including Swellhausen, Walpurgis Matt, DMAC8236, Tigger MKO, and SC Capen, who's listening to our ridiculously long episodes while he's walking his dog. That's the most fit dog ever. And also, we want to encourage you to reach out to us on social media, such as Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all at Just a Story Pod, where you can find out more stuff about this week's topic. And you can also go to our website, JustAStoryPod.com, and see all of our fabulous sources and other information about these episodes. And from our website, you can find links to the merch shop. And right now, for a few more days... We have the Jersey Devil Headless Pirate Ghost Best Friends Forever Collection. And that's a limited edition. It will go away. And so if you want it, go and check it out. And you will also find links to our Patreon. Patreon is a place where you can become a sustaining member in a not publicly funded (laughs) podcast. So if you would like to be a viewers like you or listeners like you, you can go to our Patreon page and subscribe to give us a recurring donation and help fund the Just a Story mystery machine. And on there, if you sign up to be a patron, you will get lots of cool rewards. You can get things like stickers, chances to do digital meetups, mini episodes of our show where we look at different mysteries and stories ripped from the headlines that are stranger and maybe truer than fiction. Oh, and we've also added a new thing. If you are a Patreon subscriber, you will have access to all of our merch at cost. We have a great new discount code up for patrons. And also one more way to get in touch with us is to call the Just a Story hotline and tell us about your favorite urban legend, ghost story, curse, or et cetera. Or et cetera, indeed. And that number is 512-222-3375. Just please don't call and curse us. <gasps> that would be terrible. I'd cry for weeks. You can curse in your message. Just don't actually put a curse on us. Oh, we welcome cursing. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> so, Samantha, back to the story at hand. This story at mummified hand. Well-preserved, creepy, mummified hands. So today we are talking about the curse of King Tut. I've heard of it. Everyone's heard of it. It is also known as the Pharaoh's Curse. So you may say, this is an old legend. Yes, this was put to bed ages ago. Oh, no. Oh, no, it wasn't. Oh, no. Recent headlines from uh, British newspapers. Do you mean tabloids? Do you mean tabloids? Well, you can call the Daily Mirror whatever you want. (laughs) Oh, they're a complex beast. Downton Abbey was almost ruined by the curse of Tutankhamun as Highclere family discovered the tomb. Oh, High Claire. High Claire is where, where it's filmed. Yes, it is. I thought you meant they discovered a tune. Okay, got it. I'm on board now. So actor Dan Stevens has revealed that members of the cast have been hit by a series of unfortunate accidents. Michelle Dockery, who plays Lady Mary, was taken to the hospital after she dropped a knife on her foot while filming. Zoe Boyle, who plays Lavinia Swire, broke her wrist when she fell off a bus and Laura Carmichael, who plays Lady Edith, fell over at the rap party and also broke her wrist. Well, that's definitely the story at hand, isn't it? So I think what this means is that they need stunt doubles for life. For walking off buses, I guess. Yes. Partying and or knifing. So now High Claire is the familial estate of Lord Carnivon. Bum, bum, bum. Who's that? 
He was the financial backer of the expedition and excavation of Tutankhamun's tomb in the Valley of the Kings in 1922. He and archaeologist Howard Carter opened the tomb and found wonders and maybe a curse. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Okay, so Carnivon was very hands-on, though. He was not just like some guy who was sending checks across to Egypt. He was actually there. Oh, he was there. He was all up in it. He was in the thick of things. And so he brought home with him wonders and maybe a curse. And so maybe Downton Abbey is suffering from the lingering effects of his curious nature. Yes, from disturbing the tomb. Oh, no. So to talk about the curse of King Tut, we have to talk about what else was going on at this time. At this time... There was a serious Egyptomania going on throughout the world, really, especially in the West. Well, everyone was just crazy for pharaohs. But you see it not only in more popular culture, but you see it in high culture as well. This is a theme that was explored by many great writers, and it includes some of my tippy-top favorite poetry. I'm going to read you one now. Do you realize we've like inadvertently put poetry in every episode, like the last like six? I, I, I like it. <laughs> I can't help it. I'm sorry. We're, we're going to culture you. Sorry, it's not on purpose. We're not trying to make you learn real things. But no, this is one of my favorite romantic poems. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, you mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay... Of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. So while the Romantic poets love to ponder on the lost majesty of the Egyptian empire, fascination with Egypt did not start with the French and English in the 1700s and 1800s. Even the Greeks and Romans were inspired by them, having temples not only in Egyptian style, but even including Egyptian gods in their pantheon. It's basically fanfic. Don't you think, like, when it's that short of a time? You forget, like, they did exist at the same time, but also they were, like, millennia. Yeah, it's okay, <laughs> fair, 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 fair. But from the arrival of Islamic forces in 641 until the late 1600s, you really didn't have a lot of Europeans visiting Egypt. So those ideas of the fascinating and inspiring Egypt were kind of lost, as many things were. <laughs> it's called the Dark Ages for a reason, right? Exactly. Right? And so some of this came back into play during the Renaissance with the rediscovery of classic writers, including Herodotus and the Hermetic text. You had people like the Rosicrucians and the Freemasons being inspired by this imagery and including it in a lot of their works. Popes were re-erecting obelisks, and Egyptian elements began to be used in room decorations. So interest was really high, especially among the upper class. But when it really took off was this little guy. Little guy, you say? Like, who are you calling little guy? We like to call Napoleon. I call him Nappy Bones, but whatevs. So on July 1st in 1798, Napoleon invaded Egypt. With 400 ships and 54,000 men. That would be hard to do covertly. Well, he kind of did. He actually, a lot of the men 
whenever they were kind of getting on the ships and boarding on, thought they were invading England. Wait, the French did? His, yeah, like his the, like people. The, like the minions, like the his, soldiers. His, his grunts thought they were going to go kick the English ass. Yeah, and then they like took a wrong turn. <laughs> At Albuquerque, no doubt. Okay, so fun. So Napoleon saw this as an opportunity to make the founding country of Western culture a province of the greatest country in modern Europe. And with it, he- So for the optics, basically. <laughs> no, there were a lot of resources. It was, yeah. it's just, it's in the perfect place. And it's right in the middle. It's very powerfully situated, geopolitically speaking. So not only did he bring the gift of war. Yay! He also brought the gift of science. Science. He brought along 150 savants. I don't think he means what I think he means. <laughs> well, savant just means like extremely intelligent people, you know, like scientists, engineers, scholars, artists, etc. And what did he do with his savants while he was in the founding country of Western civilization? Well, I mean, he wanted to map the country. He wanted to learn how to manage the Nile. He wanted to help with Egyptian agriculture. Help and, with or co-opt? Well, help and so he could co-opt. <laughs> You got to make it good so you can steal it. And, of course, just in general improved standard of living. Because, you know, a happier, lower class you can control more easily. And with all of this, Egypt was rediscovered to the Western world. Specifically, ancient Egypt. You know, they found the temples and tombs of Luxor, Dendera, and the Valley of the Kings. And this was all mapped meticulously and drawn and Beautiful sketches. It's absolutely beautiful. And just gave these new details of the ancient pharaonic Egypt that had never really been seen by the Western world. Dominique Vivant Denon did these like amazing sketches while traveling with the military. And he wrote in his I think it was in his diary. I felt People that I was, all kept diaries then. It's a very safe assumption. I felt that it was in the sanctuary of the arts and sciences. Never did the labor of man show me the human race in such a splendid point of view. In the ruins of Tentera, the Egyptians appeared to me giants. I'm really happy he brought artists. And with all these savants, he established the Institute of Egypt in Cairo, which continued all of the scientific endeavors within Egypt in his short time there. Well, it wasn't just science, and he was short. That's funny, but it was also like he really was on that short. He was that short. How tall was he? <laughs> like not 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 ridiculously short. That's his driver's license height. <laughs> he added two inches, and you know it. But they were doing a lot of cultural research as well. They were in a constant, ongoing effort to learn more about the history. No, they were, and there so there are several things related to this that really helped bring the ideas of ancient Egypt into Europe. Now, of course, one. The Rosetta Stone I've was discovered in July of 1799, only one year after the arrival. So the Rosetta Stone is a tablet that had hieroglyphics and other languages on the tablet. The same text was written in different languages, and that allowed people to form a basis for translation. Previously, they had thought that these were just like little pictures. They hadn't understood that it was a system of writing and when they did, it was kind of a national treasure moment, like where the key unlocks or like Da Vinci Code. Like, I think it was just a huge discovery. No, it was extremely huge. And so in 1822, Jean-Francois Champollion in France 
broke that riddle. And he actually didn't even have access to the Rosetta Stone. He had like drawings of it. Somebody took a crayon and laid it on, on its side and was like, shook, shook, shook. Okay. <laughs> they did do a lot of that. <laughs> so also there was the description de l'Egypte, which after the return of after the return of France in 1801, all of these savants organized their materials and were like, we've got to publish this. And so the first volume was published in 1809. And they eventually had 23 volumes. And three of these were the largest books ever printed, standing over 43 inches tall. What are you talking about? Why are you talking about how tall my books are? I have tall books. I like tall things. And so the total set contained 837 engravings, many huge and just extremely detailed, just capturing the Egyptian culture from all of the vantage points. So I'm sure that this captured the imagination of the people back home in France and elsewhere. Right. All of these artifacts were brought back as well. And so one famous artifact that was eventually brought back was the Luxor Obelisk, which is at Place de la Concorde in Paris. So if you've ever been to Paris, you've seen this giant obelisk, Egyptian obelisk. And so in 1830... Egypt gave the gift of two obelisks as a thank you to France for help in modernizing the country. So, naval engineer Apollinaire Lebas... Wait, what? Yeah. What? He's, he's our relative. Our relative. Well, now he is. Now he's yours. I'll claim him. what do he do? Well, he was an engineer in the French army, and he sailed to Egypt in the Luxor, arriving in 1831. He completely rebuilt the ship when he got there. To accommodate it, he built a sled and wooden path to drag it to the ship. And once it was loaded onto the ship, they actually had to wait six months for the Nile to rise enough so they could get out. <laughs> in that time, though, they went and explored, went to the archaeological sites and went to tombs and brought all that information back. This is like Star Trek. Like, I mean, it's just got to be like going to a completely foreign planet. It's got to be so outside the realm of what you are used to seeing every day and what you think is possible that you feel like you are exploring an M-class planet light years away. They broke the Prime Directive. <laughs> yes, they did. That's why we have it now. So interesting fun fact is that King Louis-Philippe decided to place the, the Place de la Concorde because this was where the uh, guillotines were <laughs> during the revolution. And he wanted to um, have people forget about that. <laughs> I'm going to go with... Good choice. So it was raised in October of 1836. There was a crowd of 200,000. And Apollinaire Lebas was there directing operations and stood directly under the obelisk as it was being raised. Daredevil. We're real, real smart people. <laughs> nah, shall be fine. I guess he didn't have a Cajun accent yet. He didn't. In my head he does. and It's fabulous. <laughs> He's like in overalls and like shrimp and boots. Yes. <laughs> May, get that, that big obelisk. Get that on the boat. We're going to go. <laughs> no, man. We just wait. We just wait six months and then we go. <laughs> we could do some fishing. We could cook. We could get a drink or two. Let's go over there and look at that. So before that, after Napoleon had kind of conquered Egypt, the British were having none of it. Do you see what he's doing over there? Just going into Egypt like he owns it. Can you believe the nerve? Well, and it was splitting their empire in two. Splitting our... Wait, we have an empire? Oh, you know about the empire. Oh, I don't know anything about the empire. It's very imprudent, isn't it? <laughs> they like us. Yeah. He's just prancing around like he owns that Egypt. 
We've never done such things. So in 1801, the English Navy sailed to Egypt. There was the famous Battle of the Nile. And the fleet led by Rear Admiral Horatio Nelson. Oh. Yeah. Admiral Nelson. Later, Admiral Nelson. Yes. Yeah. This is like where he like really gained his fame and all of his titles. Okay. By defeating Napoleon in Egypt. That'll do it. And so they defeated Napoleon. Was it a, was it a short conflict? I don't know, was it? <laughs> so in their treaty was the transfer of all the Egyptian artifacts that had been gathered to British ownership, including the Rosetta Stone. I'm sorry, it is ridiculous. Why did they take all that? Like what it's like valuable? Well, I understand it's valuable, but like why why do they think the French have it to begin with? Like isn't it Egyptian? No, France. No, no. Egypt okay. knows nothing. They are they savages, can't appreciate savage this, Arabs. This yeah, history. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, it's mm-hmm. gonna be a long episode, isn't it? No, it's gonna be a fun one. Okay. <laughs> so the white men came and they decided that they knew better than the Egyptians, and then they fought over the Egyptians' things, and the whitest white men won. And so then they had the things that belonged to Egypt, but Egypt didn't know they wanted. Oh, Egypt knew they wanted it. No, they didn't know anything. They were savages. Don't be ridiculous. Oh, they knew. We'll get there. Okay. So everyone in Europe saw it as their duty, especially the British, to collect as many Egyptian relics as possible. And Egyptology was all the rage. So it was their patriotic duty to England. To the empire. Okay, well. So... To illustrate that, George Evers wrote in 1878, Everyone high and low has heard of Egypt and its primeval wonders. The child knows the names of the good and the wicked pharaohs before it has learned those of the princes of its own country. I mean, who doesn't know the princes? Let's let's start there. What kind of heathen children are these? But then before we know the princes, we know the pharaohs. Of course. They're much more fantastic. I mean, they do seem like fictional characters. They... So in the Valley of the Kings, in these archaeological sites, Victorians saw really a mirror to what was going on in their empire. Okay. You know, Egypt was this massive empire. It was exceedingly wealthy. You know, it had all these ambitions of wealth and grandeur, as the British Empire did. But also it had this extreme fascination with death. You know who we have to thank for that? Queen Victoria, the founder of Hot Topic. She was all, all into the mourning gear. She stayed in mourning from the time her dear, sweet, sweet, sweet husband died until the time that she herself was taken into death's sweet embrace. She wore black. She wore mourning jewelry. She slept with a fake hand made from a mold of his. What? Really? Is it real? Each night. Is it real? It's real. No. It's real. She was always depicted as being quite sad and never came out of mourning. And Hot Topic would definitely sell some of the morning jewelry <laughs> that they had at this time. Yes, at this time, the Egyptian iconography had been co-opted into the British practice of wearing your loved one's pieces round your neck or in your ears or upon your head or on your finger. And that's known as morning jewelry. Of course, I mean. And you would take hair, usually hair. I've seen some with fingernail clippings, but those really weird me out. And you would have it made into an elaborate pattern and usually encased in resin or something similar. And it would be worn as rings, hair clasp, earrings, necklaces, bracelets, so on and so forth. And a lot of these pieces, these pieces of mourning jewelry, which were very popular at the time, would take on a look that 
referenced Egyptian iconography. And, you know, you saw things like the scarabs. And, and sometimes th- real ones. Oh, that's lovely. And also obelisk. Right, which there are obelisks in other countries other than France. Of course, there's Cleopatra's Needle. That one's in London. And there's the one in Central Park. Well, there's also one in Washington, but that's different. Not made by the Egyptians. No, just the Freemasons. <sighs> and I think there are several in, in Rome, and there are more other places. But then Egyptian style of architecture was also very popular, and you especially see it in mausoleums and tombs. In London's Highgate Cemetery, there's an Egyptian avenue that was added by James Bunstan Bunning. Between, really? That's, yeah, that sounds yeah. like a name for a cute little rabbit in a peacoat. Maybe he was. <laughs> Between 1839 and 1842, and William Justine wrote in the 1865 Guide to the Highgate Cemetery, As we enter the massive portals and hear the echoes of our footsteps, intruding on the awful silence of this cold, stony death palace, we might almost fancy ourselves treading through the mysterious corridors of an ancient Egyptian temple. Uh, this cold, stony death palace sounds like a Maiden album. So metal. So metal. The Egyptians were so metal. They really weren't. They kind of weren't. So we have the architecture style being mimicked in mausoleums and tombs. We have mourning jewelry. So we're very... We're getting a real strong connection between funerary customs in the UK and Egypt at this time. Oh, for sure. I mean, they just saw it as this mirror of their great empire. Look, they were sad forever, too. They shaved their eyebrows. So they also had a lot of architecture based on Egyptian style. You can see this in universities, but also around places like London, such as the Egyptian Hall in London's Piccadilly Circus, which was built in 1812. And it was originally a museum to show curiosities from Captain Cook's adventures. Oh, I remember Captain Cook. He stole lots of stuff. He was a good, good explorer. You can go check him out on our Night Marchers episode way back when. Yeah, good guy. But the theater became associated with, of course, Egyptian artifacts, which they had displays of. And also seances and magic shows. Oh, I know who was in the front row every night. But there was an in-house duo. I thought you would love this. So there's this in-house duo of Masculine and Cook who conducted openly fake seances and hauntings with a view so you can see what was happening and how it was done. They were... Penn and Teller. Yeah, they were debunkers. They were Penn and Teller. They were doing the show but showing you how it was done. Exactly. And so Masculine really wondered why they even bothered. And he said that the spiritualist had no alternative but to claim us as the most powerful spirit mediums who found it more profitable to deny the assistance of the spirits. Oh, well, that really turns things on its head. Oh, I do like this because I am obsessed with Houdini's fight with the spiritualist. I think it is one of the most fascinating moments in popular history and they're doing it and no one believes them. And Houdini went through the same thing when he would show Arthur Conan Doyle his methods or whatever. Conan Doyle would be like, he must be magic. He must be magic. Clearly he's so powerful. He doesn't even feel the forces working upon him. Oh, Oh, Coney. Coney don't play that. So, In addition to the seances and the ghost shows and the fake hauntings and the real hauntings and all of these things that are happening at the time, 
There is yet another event you can add to your social calendar if you want to stay up on your ancient Egyptian history. Oh, I do. Is it a lecture? Sort of. It's also called a striptease act. That's perverse. It's, it's often baffling as well. So here's an example. On the 28th of December in 1889, there was an ad letting people know that they could attend a lecture under the heading, Unrolling a Mummy. It was in the Illustrated London News, and it was expected to have quite a large attendance at the University College. So they brought out a mummy from their collection. They just had lying around, because they really did have lots of mummies just lying around. And they proceeded to unroll it before a live audience. This is ridiculous. And then they'd examine it, and then they return it to the college for further testing. And usually there was only one line about the person's identity. We think it might his name might have been this, might have been that. Could have been anybody. We don't know. Science. It was like expensive to it go. Was. I saw one ad that said it was five dollars. In 1889. That's a pretty penny. That's a pretty five dollars. And so one writer who had put together an essay on the topic says that the lack of biography is telling because the Victorian relationship with the ancient Egyptian artifacts mirrored their own worries that they were grappling with their identity in the industrial age and they were feeling like they were very fleeting you know that people's legacies came and went you might do a job where no one cared you might have a family but you know they would just do the same things that you did it seems like your station became more fixed you might be like ozymandias behold my nothing yeah so behold my uh never mind yeah if you if you haven't read the poem it is a like an explorer stalwart britishman coming upon the great broken monument of ozymandias that says look upon my works and it's of course destroyed abandoned half buried in sand you get the imagery what's the point of it all it sounds positively french at this moment by the way so there were societies like the Egyptian Exploration Fund, the Society for Biblical Archaeology, and others who hosted unwrappings in order to attract patrons and financiers for their excavations and digs. And there was also an idea that people could be educated about the anthropological significance of ancient culture, their beliefs and practices, etc., through events like unwrappings. I feel like that's mirroring like Barnum. Oh, yes. Infotainment had its beginnings at this moment in history, during the Gilded Age, when we had disposable income and wanted to desperately escape cyclical poverty and touted the upper echelons of society and charged them with learning in order to retain their dominance. Just saying. Nicholas Daly wrote a piece called The Mummy Story as a Commodity. And he says, Embodied, made bitimonious flesh, Mystery came up against the saw, the scissors, the hammer, and the chisel. Audiences could not only gaze upon the investigative process, its luckier members could take part in it. They could handle the very bandages that stripped away layer by layer revealed Egyptian mystery incarnate. And so this was like bringing it to you as much as you could. I mean, you were physically like able to touch the mummy. Ew. I'd touch a mummy. I wouldn't. I really wouldn't. I freak out when I see mummies. They scare the shit out of me. We saw the King Tut exhibit. <laughs> so there was another event. In 1834, hosted at the Royal College of Surgeons in London, Thomas Pettigrew was going to unroll a mummy. Europeans had been buying mummies since the Elizabethan period. 
They'd been using them for pigment and medicine and charms and basically just being as terrible as one could possibly be. Like fertilizer? Yeah. Like the cats? So you know how people get pissed off when you disturb an ancient Indian burial ground? This was doing it on purpose for profit. (laughs) And it wasn't a burial ground. It was the buried. So that's fun. But there was a Trappist monk named Abbot Ferdinand de Grom who wrote to Pasha Muhammad Ali in 1833, It would hardly be respectable on one's return from Egypt to present oneself without a mummy in one hand and a crocodile in the other. All right, so I'm sure he's being like a little facetious, but it's really not that far from truth. Like, you're going to come back without some souvenirs? No. No. And Egyptians knew this. They had begun to transport mummies to the busiest cities from outlying areas so that tourists could pick them up on their way home there are especially large caches in port cities where they would leave from. Oh, so it's like the t-shirts at an airport. Yes. It's like instead of getting a t-shirt for your mom, you're like, um, mummified cat? I'll have that person, please. So Thomas Pettigrew, who was going to be doing this unrolling in 1834, was a respected surgeon. And he published the history of Egyptian mummies. And he was kind of like part of the literati. He was literati adjacent. But he was, you know, very well connected to a lot of writers and artists. And he had a knack for spectacle. He wasn't the first person to unwrap a mummy before a live audience, but he was the first person to make it an event, a spectacle, an art form. A striptease? Uh, Probably. It's just how people kept writing about this. I don't know why they say that. But in 1834, this unwrapping was attended by around 3,000 people. Now, I think it's time to maybe point out the irony of the fact that Victorians would not remove, you know, a glove in mixed company. Showing ankle was scandalous. Heavens to Betsy. But here we are unwrapping a corpse. And there are accounts of this where you see how, like, charged the entire event is, where it's it's kind of mind-boggling to put yourself in the mindset of a person who is so repressed, you know, like, intentionally seeing something like this. And this account comes from Tophiel Gautier, and he said that Poe would have been inspired by a mummy unwrapping. And he described one that he attended in 1857. is of a woman named Nez Cons, and she was placed in a contraption that made it seem like she danced as the bandages unraveled around her. Maybe this is where the striptease comes from. Maybe. I don't know. But funerary jewels fell out of the wrappings while she was turning And she had colorless but perfectly preserved flowers under each of her arms. And he said that he was in awe of the spectacle in front of him. A woman who walked in sunshine, lived and loved 500 years before Moses, 2,000 years before Jesus Christ. But then he goes on to say that he believes her eyes are looking at him with a bit of disdain. Right. It's like there's always that two sides of the coin whenever they think about Egypt. There's that, wow, beauty, wow, disdain they hate me (laughs) or or just fear you know not all of this was just for the love of learning Pettigrew may have been out to prove something because he wanted to examine the bodies of the mummified egyptian dead and take cranial measurements no yeah science science all right so yeah i mean we talked about this a little on oh the indiana jones episode the nazis like doing this Mm mm-hmm so there is... So nothing good's going to come after what you say, because you said the Nazis like doing it, but go ahead. True. There was a fascination with trying to prove that Egyptians were Caucasian. Right. Because you couldn't have, like, Arabs or 
Negroes. God forbid. Being the one of the greatest civilizations ever. So clearly they were white and lost. Let's start there. So he became very famous. And he was the first treasurer of the British Archaeological Society. And he was even hired. And I'm not kidding. This actually happened. Are you ready? This is not just a story. I'm ready. He was hired to mummify the Duke of Hamilton. Oh, my God. (laughs) After he died. Of course he was. So Alexander Hamilton. No. No, no. Stop singing. Stop singing. Uh, uh, Not that mm. one. Not that one. I wasn't singing. I was going to rap. Don't do that either. Please, no, no, Please God. One, no one needs. So he was the 10th Duke of Hamilton, and he was Scottish, and he owned Hamilton Palace, and it was larger than Buckingham Palace, and he thought that that was pretty necessary because he believed he was the legitimate king of Scotland. I thought Mel Gibson was the legitimate king of Scotland. I thought James McAvoy was the legitimate king of Scotland. <laughs> so he was the Lord Hyde Steward to King William and Queen Victoria, and of Alexander, it is recorded that he had a great predisposition to overestimate the importance of his ancient birth and that he had an immense family pride. So he did have an immense family pride and he may not have so much overestimated the importance of his birth as really wanted other people to. And I'm going to give you a little bit of evidence to that. No, really, I'm special. No, really, I'm special. This is the, that's the title of the section. So he commissioned a David. Like the French painter. Yes, of Napoleon. Why of Napoleon? Because <laughs> he liked him and thought he was awesome. And so David was the first painter to Napoleon. And in the autumn of 1811, Hamilton paid 1,050 pounds to David to paint a full-length portrait of Napoleon for him to put in his castle. Wasn't England at war with Napoleon? Yeah, a little maybe, bit. Maybe he was hoping he could get Scotland back. There have been stranger things. He was the Grand Master of Freemasonry in Scotland as well. Freemasons. Exactly. Conspiracy. Conspiracy. And so people said really nice things about him. This is his obituary. Timidity and variableness of temperament prevented him from rendering much service to or being much relied upon by his party. And in Days of the Dandies, which is a book that exists that I need to have. Oh, that sounds amazing. If it's illustrated, I want it. (laughs) Never was such a magnifico as the 10th Duke, the ambassador, the Empress Catherine. When I knew him, he was very old, but he held himself straight as any grenadier. He was always dressed in a military, laced undressed coat, tights, and hessian boots. And another lady in her letters mentions his great coat, long queue, and fingers covered with gold rings, and his foreign appearance were worth remarking upon. So he had a reputation. He also had Diego Velasquez Philip IV painting and Anthony Van Yyck's Charles I on horseback. So he was a collector of all power. Power. Things that represented power. Yes. There are several historians acquainted with his collection and collection habits who think that he might have been attempting to legitimize himself as the 10th Duke of Hamilton and emphasize his birthright because his father was a distant cousin who had surprisingly inherited the title of Duke. And in Rome, he became an admirer of Pauline Bourget, Napoleon's sister, who bequeathed her traveling service, which is tea service, to the Duke. 
He later purchased from King Charles X of France a silver gilt tea set from Napoleon's marriage to Marie-Louise of Austria, which was placed in the same room as David's painting. He's a Napoleon fanboy. He even married his son off to Princess Marie of Baden, the daughter of an adopted daughter of Napoleon. He's like, look, we're three steps related. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, and his son wanted to marry someone else, and he's like, no, no, I've found for you a legitimate heir to the crown line of Napoleon. So everyone was excited about that. So in recognition of his own importance, because this needs to, this is a thing to celebrate. When one is this important to oneself, and one has this much money, he decided that he would build a monument worthy of himself. And he commissioned a mausoleum, and he believed that it was going to be the eighth wonder of the world. This guy had delusions of grandeur. Oh, you'll bet. You'll bet. And the final flourish was his coffin. A sarcophagus that had been made for an Egyptian princess. Wait, it was like an ancient sarcophagus? Yes. Not like a replica. No, he purchased it. He was a trustee on the British Museum, on the board for the British Museum. And he had been charged with going out and getting important things. And he came back and he's like, I has for you sarcophagus. And they're like, lovely. And they looked at it and they're like, I don't know if that's really a princess's sarcophagus. And we have a lot of, you know, not princess sarcophagi. So that 12,000 pounds you, you know, kind of just stole from the government. We're going to need that back. So he paid the museum back for the sarcophagus. And then he owned it. And what does one do with a sarcophagus but lie in it when you're dead? Become an Egyptian princess? He did. He did. And so I found this really quippy, fantastic writing about this. And it's on the Douglas Archives website. And I'm going to put a link on the site. But I'm just going to read it to you because it's that good. Unfortunately, this is where ego and sanity part company. When the old boy kicked the bucket, it became apparent to everyone that there was a considerable difference in height between the good duke and the unfortunate princess who was to give her coffin to him. The only way they could stuff the old bugger into the available space was to cut his legs off at the knees, and so they did. No. The final irony occurred later. In 1927, during a re-examination of the coffin, the Egyptian princess, it was discovered, had in fact been constructed for use by an Egyptian court jester. I'm going to call just a story on that. So I told you that story to tell you another story, or while I was telling you another story. I was talking about his embalmer, the man who mummified the Duke. And that's Mr. Pettigrew, or Dr. Pettigrew. He collected other mummies as well. He famously showed off the head of Yagen, an indigenous Australian rebel who opposed colonial rule, who'd been killed by bounty hunters. So Pettigrew acquired exclusive use of his head for 18 months. And he decorated it with cockatoo feathers and displayed it in front of a commissioned painting showing the culture of the English and the Aborigines living happily ever after side by side in a jolly little empire. Oh, I'm sure there were like rainbows and butterflies. Mm-hmm. And he encouraged his guests to buy a commemorative pamphlet as a souvenir. So this is another way of raising funds. And so it's possible to kind of look at the mummy unwrappings and this phenomena as the undoing of a sacred ritual. And that's something that unsettled the Victorians because they were so attuned to ritual and symbolic significance. Especially around death. So kind of on the other side of the coin, it was an interesting thing more related to life that the British were obsessed with 
I should say, very interested in. So were the Americans on this one. Called mummy wheat. And now there were also mummy peas, mummy bulbs, etc. And these were supposedly plants that were grown from seeds found in either mummy's bandages, often cited as clutched in its dead hands, or from like vases, etc. in the tombs. There's actually an account of like a replica grain like granary that had was full of mummy wheat that they found in a tomb. And like that's what provided a lot of the samples that were later tested. Well this is where that like fringe theory that um Ben Carson agrees with that the pyramids were actually just granaries. So this is I'm a s- true Victorian urban legend that's still kind of being cited today. And the interest in mummy wheat among agriculturists was really high because at this time they were trying to improve agriculture. There was growing interest in science and crossbreeding, and they wanted to find the best wheat or whatever that they could. And if they could find that in Egyptian mummies or mummies, the better. So this is like when we discovered genetics and we went, let's modify everything. And they were like, oh, we've discovered ghosts. Let's have them cast spells. These- it's magic because it touched a ghost? Of course. Okay. It's better. It's better. It's better. It's better because it was from that time. So where the seeds come from, no one's exactly sure. A lot of people cite Pettigrew in correspondence between you know the elite And of course, periodicals were filled with accounts of ancient cobs of corn being successfully grown. One person that was the biggest supporter of this was Martin Tupper, who wrote numerous letters to the Times about this, and even presented corn to Prince Albert, claiming that it was from the Egyptians, and Prince Albert grew it in his garden. Oh, seeing shades of George here, I'm not really liking, but okay, continue. So mummy wheat was found in private collections, displayed in museums, moved amongst the elite of Britain, as well as grown in fields, flower beds, and homes. It was even presented at the Royal Institution by Faraday, and Darwin even discussed it in his letters with other people. I'm sure Darwin was like, mm-hmm. He was. He was, like, <laughs> he was like, this is ridiculous. He was giving him side eye. Now, this was conclusively proven impossible. First, in a paper by Youngman in 1951, and then has been proven time and again. So, most likely, this was just a kind of hoax. But this urban legend, what it comes from, the pyramids as the granaries, still exist today. So, this wasn't the only Egyptian fad that just permeated the zeitgeist of the time. This was a moment when one should walk like, talk like, act like, dress like. Walk like an Egyptian. An Egyptian, yes, exactly. So... At this moment, we have Rudolph Valentino. Sexiest man alive. He really was. My God, have you seen that man? Oh, my God. But anyway, I digress. He was this, the sheik. And then you have Douglas Fairbanks playing the thief of Baghdad. And women are using Egyptian coal to accent their eyes and like drawing the little Egyptian cat eyes for the first time. And there's a company called... Tutankhamun Limited, which produced jewelry, skirts, three-piece suits, mummy wraps, gloves, and even sandals. And there were tut-related snuff tins and cigarette cases and chocolate boxes. And New York Times and Vogue both cited the obvious influence of Egyptian art and aesthetics on Fashion Week in 1923. It was just a 
thing. And this is all happening during the loosening of morals that's happening really across the West. It's happening in America and also in England. And I've looked at a lot of like the prohibition era behavior in America over the years, but I'd never really taken a look at the English counterpart. And so obviously, as in America, there is a huge fascination with the occult, spiritualism, and archaeology. And DORA, which was the Defense of Realm Act, had just been relaxed. And this was sort of like an English prohibition-ish. They never got all the way to being, you know, a dry country. But they did, like, make it illegal to buy a drink for someone else at the bar. Or restrict the sale of alcohol after 9 o'clock. Things like that. And, of course, at this time is all the stuff we like to talk about. The spiritualism, fascination with death, and magic. Well, that's because 19 million soldiers had died during World War I. And this was the young, healthy generation sent off to fight the older generation's war. Right. We talked about that in the Ouija board episode. And also in the Angels episode. Right. But that was kind of the inspiration of why the Ouija board became so popular. Being able to contact your lost loved ones. And everyone had lost a loved one. And so at this time you have like a really rebellious youth culture emerge where drinking and drugs and dancing and staying out to all hours and carousing and showing your knees. Flappers. Flappers. Rouge your knees. Rouge your knees, roll your stockings down and all that jazz. So this is the atmosphere in which we get this fever pitch Egyptomania. At the turn of the century, the exploration of Egypt is in full swing. And this is when we come back to Howard Carter, Lord Carnarvon, and the discovery of King Tutankhamun's tomb. King Tut. Funky Tut. So Howard Carter was a prominent archaeologist and Egyptologist who's also a very accomplished artist. I just wanted to mention that he's a little like Hitler. What? Nothing. It was his last season with funding. 1923. It had been a hard year. Because his financier, Lord Carnarvon, who we mentioned earlier, was not very pleased because he had noticed that there seemed to be a significant lack of return on his investment. They met in 1907 after Carnarvon had been in a serious car accident and was sent to the warm climate of Egypt to convalesce away from the English fog and things. That makes zero sense. Whatever. But he was looking for someone who would go dig in Luxor. And they did in the beginning have some early successes. They found the tomb of Ramses IV and a few other significant finds. But Theodore Davis, this American with amazing facial hair and more money than sense, finally gave up the permit to dig where they had been wanting to dig in 1914. And immediately, Carnivon and Carter, CNC, swoop in and claim it. Carter was very inspired to actually seek out the tomb, not just of any Egyptian, but specifically of King Tutankhamun. Now, why did he want to find that one specifically? Tutankhamun has an interesting legacy in Egyptian history that's often overlooked because we become more focused on the archaeological significance of this find. But he restored the full pantheon after his father, Akhenaten, had abolished all but one of the gods and kind of branded 
this Egyptian monotheism. And in writing about him, people often call him the heretic pharaoh. That is not good. No, but it's a fabulous name. Also, how metal is that? Heretic Pharaoh, you can use that as your band name. It's cool. I won't see you. But when Tut became king, he restored that. But he was later erased by history by his successor because he was considered kind of like a bad seed. You know, like his father was crazy and... A bad mummy seed? Exactly. He was never going to bear wheat. But Carter, during his excavation of other tombs and his cataloging of other people's finds had come across the name Tutankhamun in other places. And so it was kind of like this moment when he was like, oh my God, it's not just a story. It's not just a story. It's real. It could really be here. But because his name was kind of abolished, kind of taken out of historical documents and off monuments, etc., it's like people had known to look for him. Because the pharaohs of the time, they would erase their predecessors from history especially and, if they didn't agree with them and he had been very erased very thoroughly it seems like and so he, well, he, d- he didn't reign for very long no he was young when he died and we'll maybe do an episode on his murder one day murder bum, bum, bum. murder so they have the permit they're gonna go look for tut they think if they can find this there's a good chance it could be relatively intact because it was erased quickly and thoroughly but then the Great War. No, pause. <laughs> the pause. Great War. Okay. And they had continual bad luck even between 1918 and 1922. And so Carnivon eventually did have like the sit down, the uncomfortable sit down that you dread and talk to your wife about with your head in your hands for like six months before you do it. Like, look, man, <laughs> you're not finding shit. <laughs> I'm sorry, dude, but come on. Basically. And so he threatened to withdraw funding. But Carter shamed him. (laughs) Really? Carter was like, that's fine. I understand where you're coming from. I guess I'll just have to pay for it myself. Some good British passive aggressiveness helped save the day. It did. Stiff up a lip. So Carnivon relented and was like, fine, one more year, I guess. But on November the 4th, 1922... Something miraculous happened. So young boy arrived at the site with jars of water on the back of his donkey. Now they had rounded bases, so he had to dig in the sand to set them down. And while he was making a hole for the first jar, his hand brushed against stone, and they found the first step carved into bedrock. So immediately, they called the excavation team over, and after digging, found the stairway leading to a doorway blocked with stones and plaster. Now on it was the seal stamped with a jackal and nine captives. The seal of the necropolis guards. This happened. This is real life. That's what's, this sounds so insane to me. It sounds like pulp. It's amazing how many things in history are just luck. Like dumb luck. And so the upper left-hand corner had been replastered and resealed. Someone had entered, but they left enough to seal it back up, you know, with plans to maybe come back. So he sent a telegram to Carnivon. At last, have made wonderful discovery in the valley. Magnificent tomb with seals intact. Recovered. Same for your arrival. Congratulations. 
exclamation point. Little white lie. But the interesting thing about the location of the tomb was that it was, it was only about six feet away from where Ramses VI had been found by Davis. So they excavated the door. And then they waited 20 days. They waited 20 days for Carnivon to arrive from England. That must have been excruciating. I would have gnawed my arm off. And Carter did write, Anything, literally anything, could lie beyond that passage. And it needed all my self-control to keep from breaking down the doorway and investigating then and there. It's the only time investigating has been said like a threat. But on November 24th, Carnivon finally arrived with his daughter. He brought his young daughter, Evelyn. She's in her 20s. And they opened the doors and found the stairway. And they dug deeper down and found the name on the door. Tutankhamun. And on November 26th, they found the outer door to the antechamber, 30 feet down. So they drilled this tiny little hole and they stuck something through and kind of probed to make sure there was empty space so they could start the process of breaking down the door. And they lit a candle to check for noxious gas. And then Carter put his eye to the peephole and he wrote this. As my eyes grew accustomed to the light, details of the room within emerged slowly from mist. Strange animals, statues, and gold. Everywhere the glint of gold. For the moment... An eternity it must have seemed to the others standing by. I was struck dumb with amazement. And when Lord Carnivon, unable to stand the suspense any longer, inquired anxiously, Can you see anything? It was all I could do to get out the words. Yes. Wonderful things. Wonderful things. So they found 700 items in the antechamber. Gold-covered couches, statues, effigies, chariots, ivory, vases, jars, pottery, an alabaster boat, a golden throne, gaming boards. And interestingly enough, it was all in disarray. And so that worried them because they were worried that someone had rifled through it. Someone had gotten to the tomb before them, possibly centuries before them. But on the north wall of the antechamber... Flanked by two life-size figures depicting King Tutankhamun standing guard was a block plaster doorway. Now they noticed that it had been breached at the bottom. There was just a tiny little hole where the robbers had tried to get in. And they decided from evidence around the tomb that this may have occurred during the reign of Pharaoh Hormheb. They enlarge the hole and they go in, even though they're not supposed to. But why aren't they supposed to? Well, the Egyptian government's supposed to be there whenever you're doing anything remotely like this that doesn't matter they couldn't wait i'm sure carter was like i've already waited 20 freaking days for you to get here we're going in so carter and carnivon and evelyn his daughter sneak in and two feet away from that doorway is a wall that looks like solid gold it's actually gilded wood but they don't know that and the first one had been open the first of the shrines had been open, but the second one was completely intact. Carter wrote, 3,000, 4,000 years maybe have passed and gone since human feet last trod the floor on which you stand, and yet, as you notice the signs of recent life around you, the half-filled bowl of mortar for the door, the blackened lamp, the finger mark upon the freshly painted surface, the farewell garden dropped upon the threshold, you feel it might have been but yesterday. 
the very air you breathe unchanged throughout the centuries, you share with those who laid the mummy to its rest. Time is annihilated by little intimate details, such as this. So they told no one about entering the chamber. That was kept very hush-hush. And in December through January, they removed everything carefully from the antechamber. Everything had to be cataloged and photographed in its original position and then again as a single item. It was a very rigorous process. And you can see all of these photos online. You and should. Amazing. You we'll should definitely pause. have a link yeah. on the site. One of my favorite details about all of this is that they used some of the other previously excavated tombs as workstations during the excavation. So, for example, the nearby tomb of Ramses XI was used as a storage room, and the tomb of Set II was used as a photo and conservation lab. And the mysterious tomb 55. Ooh, it's mysterious. It's quite mysterious. Was turned into a state of the art dark room for developing photos. So on February 16th of 1923, the burial chamber was officially opened. The hole was hidden by like a vase and a potted plant and that guy, Steve. Don't look over there. <laughs> and Carter and Carnivon removed the entire sealed doorway. Now on February 26th, they had to pack up and go home because it was the end of digging season, which I'm sure was excruciating again and they had not yet opened the sarcophagus so on january 3rd 1924 they did officially open the inner shrines and on january 10th 1924 carter received a letter telling him that all of the contents every single thing all the stuff belonged to egypt oh i'm sure he loved that (laughs) he did now you see until april of 1922 egypt had been a british protectorate But now they had gone and gotten all uppity and decided that they were just going to have their own country. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. And what's more, they thought the things that were in their country that pertained to their history belonged to them. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. And they were being very controlling and like micromanaging Carter. And Carter was known to have a very difficult temperament and to be very British, and he was not taking well to this new constructive criticism, if you will, from the Egyptian government. For example, they sent him a very official, rigorous outline of the time frame in which he was allowed to open the sarcophagus. And there was supposed to be a visit by all the men's wives to the burial chamber after the sarcophagus was opened. And then at the last minute, the Egyptian government revoked that permission. And that really stuck in Carter's craw. And so he left. He just packed up his shit and left. I'm out of here. Screw you. And he left the lid of the sarcophagus suspended in midair from ropes while he went through his temper tantrum. And he locked the place up. He did. He put padlocks on it. <laughs> and the Egyptians cut them off. They're like, ha <laughs> And so they went in to go continue the work. They were not as rigorous in the standards of excavation and cataloging as he was. And things became a bit of a mess. 
He was offered a chance to come back and work if he would sign a waiver that assured the government of Egypt that he would not make claims to the Egyptian artifacts. Yeah, um, sure, whatever. <laughs> and so he was allowed to come back in January of 1925. And he worked some more and they finished up the job. And he went to negotiate the final payments. And for the Carnivon estate, he, he was able to, to procure 35,000 pounds. And he received around 8,500 pounds himself. Now it's important to note that after Carter's death, executors of his will found several objects in his possession, but they did return them to Egypt. So good on them. Well, it's also important to note that there is no monument to Carter at the Egyptian Museum. Are there monuments to anybody? Yes. Oh. Kind of like everyone else. Oh. <laughs> so they had some bad beef. Yeah, but it's still the most complete Egyptian tomb ever uncovered to date. So go find one more complete and we will amend that. If one of our listeners finds a more complete ancient Egyptian tomb, we'll fact check ourselves. So whenever the King Tut discovery occurred, the press was all over it. And they were literally camping outside of the tomb, waiting to see what would come out on the stretchers. But four months after the fine had occurred, they needed new stories to report. This was so popular, we have to keep talking about it. So much has changed. So on March 24th of 1923, in the British press, there was an article written by Marie Coralie. Now, she was a romantic supernatural novelist. You know Queen Victoria had that on her bedside table, along with her creepy hand. For sure. She used the hand as a bookmark. And it said, According to a rare book I possess, the most dire punishment follows any rash intruder into a sealed tomb. And she went on to quote the book's description of, Divers secret poisons enclosed in boxes in such ways that they who touch them shall not know how they come to suffer. Who suffered? Well, she was speaking of George Herbert, also known as the fifth Earl of Carnarvon. The Corley wrote in response to the reports that Carnarvon was languishing in a Cairo hotel room, suffering the effects of an infected mosquito bite. Now, less than two weeks later, he was dead. What? It's real. It's all true. Corley was right. An ominous prophecy. Of course, she said we did a poison, but I mean, magic's way more fun. Well, it's blood poisoning, right? He died of septicemia related to a mosquito bite. Would you like to hear another prophecy? Of course. Let me tell you. Let's talk about Kiro. Kiro was a well-known medium and fortune teller in Europe, especially England, around the turn of the 20th century, as we know that is the moment for mediums and fortune tellers. He's a wildly interesting character. He had a turban. Of course he did. He did. And an incredibly impressive track record to go along with that turban. He'd sat with Mark Twain, Sarah Bernhardt, Austin Chamberlain, Oscar Wilde, Matahari. Who didn't sit with Matahari? I don't know if they were sitting. Uh, an episode. I'm gonna do, we're going to do an episode on her. I love her. She's awesome. I love her. Ernest Shackleton, who was an Antarctic explorer, but his most famous client was Edward VII, and he predicted the exact date of both his coronation and his death. Ooh, the spirits. Now, Kiro claimed that he was visited by the seventh daughter of Akhenaten, 
in a vision, and she gave him a warning to issue to Lord Carnivon. It was to the effect that on his arrival at the tomb of Tutankhamun, he was not to allow any of the relics found within to be taken away. And he concluded by saying that if Carnavan ignored the warning, he would suffer an injury while in the tomb, a sickness from which he would never recover, and death would come to him in Egypt. Now, if you think that we don't have another crazy prophecy... Uh, of course we do. We're gonna prove you wrong. So, Velma. It's not as creative as Kiro. No, it's The not. turban wearing. No. She was a society palmist and seer, and she claimed that when she sat with Lord Carnivon before he traveled to Egypt, she told him, I see great peril for you, most probably, as the indications of occult interest are so strong in your hand. It will arise from such a source. Whatever happens, I will see to it that my interest in all things occult never gets so strong as to affect my reason or my health. So all these things were, of course, reported in the papers. Because 1920s papers. Because oh, that. this would take off now. I just, I found like 10 articles about the Downton Abbey thing. True. But the press really got hold of the story because... Carnivon himself had signed an exclusive deal with the Times of London for £5,000 to report on the findings inside the tomb. Carter said he was weary of telegrams and sick to death of reporters. He wanted to avoid being followed by gentlemen of the press. One reporter for the New York Times said he hoped to drive Carter and Carnivon out of their minds for having sold a piece of the world's ancient history to the Times. So all the other papers started covering this curse. So Carnivon truly did get sick less than two months after entering the tomb. Now, he had had a mosquito bite that, after shaving, became septic, and he died. Now, it was rumored that he had said, I heard his call, and I will follow him. Pharaoh, I'm returning to you. I mean, that's just some paper, (laughs) yellow journalism. And he had suffered with a fever before he died. And one night at a theater, he became delusional and began shouting, a bird is scratching at my face. Ooh. (laughs) I think maybe we need to get Pops home. And of course, Nekabet, the vulture goddess, was the guardian of the necropolis. And this guardian was said to scratch the faces of grave robbers. Now, Carter and Carnivon had been having some, you know, lovers' quarrels, if you will, and they were kind of on the outs. However, before he became ill, he had sent this telegram to Carter. He said, I have done many foolish things, and I am very sorry. But there is one thing I want to say to you, which I hope will always be remembered. Whatever your feelings are, or will be for me in the future... My affection for you would never change. Manly love. Absolutely. There's not enough of that anymore. There's not. I think it's important to kind of have that window into their relationship. Like, I think they were kind of both assholes. And they like they really did just like butt heads. Like maybe just too much alike. But they had an, a really deep respect for one another. And they knew that they could not have done it without the other. 
So this puts Carter in the position of kind of being on the defensive as these curse claims come out. And they keep coming out. I need to tell you a story. Oh, yes? I need to tell you the story about the little bitch Susie. Um, who are you calling little bitch? That's not very nice. Little bitch Susie. This story was repeated by Carnivon's son on the fantastic program In Search Of, hosted by Leonard Nimoy. Pause, go watch it. All of it. Like, all of it. He says that back in England, when his father was in Egypt, the Lord's three-legged dog, whom we love very much and was very fond of, she's a little spaniel bitch named Susie. And we commenced to laugh. She began to howl and foam at the mouth. And then she dropped dead at the exact same moment that the Lord died in Cairo. Now, of course, that's adjusted for time difference. I'm not sure. I'm not sure <laughs> I'm if sure. he fact-checked that. And, yeah. I, you know, he was actually in Cairo with his dad, so I don't know. Maybe the, I think the cook told him. I'm sure. And so, in addition to the death of the little bitch Susie, which we all mourn, R.I.P. Susie, there was an interesting electrical phenomena surrounding Lord Carnivon's death. Stories circulated that at the moment he died, the city went dark. And then all of the lights came on just a few moments later, and the Daily Express wrote breathlessly, Suddenly, all the lights in Cairo went out, leaving them all in complete darkness. After a lapse of a few minutes, the lights came back on again, only to go abruptly. This curious occurrence was interpreted by those anxiously awaiting the news as an omen of evil. And now also, whenever his wife was trying to bring him back to England from Egypt, they booked passage on a steamer. And several passengers canceled their trip because they did not want to be on the same ship as the cursed Lord Carnivon. Terrible. So the papers were all over this, basically creating it. And they had daily updates with experts debating the Pharaoh's curse. Now, they would have people in the no camp, such as Ernest Budge, the curator at the British Museum, who called it Bunkum. What else would a man named Ernest Budge say but Bunkum? So, writer Haggard, the famous That is not a real name. We've talked about him on the show. He's a famous adventure author at like Solomon's Mines, etc., He said that it served only to swell the rising tide of superstition, which at present seems to be overflowing the world. Now, you still had several academics, let's call them, that were like, maybe, such as J.C. Martis, who is the translator of A Thousand and One Nights, said, This is no childish superstition, which can be dismissed with a shrug of the shoulder, We must remember that the Egyptians, during 7,000 years, in order to assure the calm of subterranean existence, which was supposed to delight their mummies and prevent all attempts to disturb their rest, I am absolutely convinced that they knew how to concentrate upon and around a mummy certain dynamic powers of which we possess very incomplete notions. He went on to say, It is a deep mystery which is all too easy to dismiss by skepticism. Now, there was one man in England who was not in the habit of taking the easy way out when it came to skepticism, and we really can't have an episode 
in the Gilded Age or the Jazz Age without talking about him. I know who it is. Me, me, me. Me. <laughs> me. It's your favorite person to hate. I don't hate him. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. I am amused by him. He said that Carnivon's death may have been the result of elementals, not souls, not spirits, which were created by Tutankhamun's priest and to guard his tomb. Now, this was not his first rodeo, so to speak, with dealing with ancient Egyptian curses. He said that a man that was his friend named Bertram Fletcher Robinson had died after an interaction with the unlucky mummy. So the unlucky mummy is one of the other cursed mummies floating around. And so it is literally, according to some of our legends, we'll get there in a minute. So it is still in the British Museum. It was first procured by Thomas Douglas Murray. So after graduating from Oxford in 1865, he set off for Egypt, an adventure. I think he set off for like spring break, y'all. In his fellow travelers bought a mummy case of a striking female figure from the 18th dynasty in Luxor before returning to Cairo. Now, while he was out by the pyramids, Douglas Murray went to quail hunting. I know they had quails around the pyramids. Shows how much I know. Maybe they don't. Maybe he was that stupid. (laughs) And he slipped and shot his own arm off. That's unlucky. Boy, that's unlucky. He survived and lived till 1911. That's lucky. This was known as the Unlucky Mummy, even though it wasn't actually a mummy. No, it's the mummy case. Mummy board, as they call it. They call it a mummy board. But they blamed many family misfortunes on it, and it was passed around before it was eventually donated to the British Museum in 1889. And it continued to play tricks on visitors to the Egyptian room and to the Egyptologists that were working with it. Right, like I think I read that the men that carried it in like accidentally dropped it and one broke his leg and the other was injured as well. And there are tales about, oh, oh, about the unlucky mummy sinking the Titanic. What? Yes, because they took it off display after a while. And it hitched a ride on the Titanic? Well, people assumed that a wealthy buyer had purchased it and that's the reason that the titanic sank is because the unlucky mummy was on it and then there were some people who were so determined that this damn thing was the root of all evil that they said that it sank with the titanic but then later it floated up and was pulled in by the lucentinia and that maybe it sank that boat too it was just a serial boat sinker and problem causer Of course, those are just a story, as we have already mentioned, that this is an exhibit in the British Museum, or in the collection of the British Museum. Fletcher Robinson was an Egyptologist who was working on a massive investigation into the unlucky mummy, and he planned to deliver a sound blow to the story of this magical Egyptian artifact with a dose of cold, hard logic. That easy skepticism. I like it. Doyle didn't. I could have guessed. Right. And so he went on to say in later years, it is impossible to say with absolute certainty if this is true. If we had proper occult powers. Call Houdini. We could determine it. But I warn Fletcher Robinson against concerning himself with the mummy at the British Museum. I told him he was tempting fate by pursuing the inquiries. But he was fascinated and would not desist and then he was overtaken by illness 
The immediate cause guarding the mummy might act. They could have guided Mr. Robinson into a series of such circumstances as would lead him to contract the disease and thus cause his death. Just as in Lord Carnarvon's case, human illness was the primary cause of death. So, he said, Fletcher Robinson died like Lord Carnarvon died because the spirits made him touch stuff that made him sick. Yeah, I'll buy it. Okay, so that's fine. There was another... (laughs) We're in wild speculation territory. I just have to say, we are giving so many... like We're being the most gossipy old biddies on this episode. (laughs) This is like Victorian time urban legends. But there was also a story that was circulated that Conan Doyle maybe might have kind of sort of accidentally murdered Fletcher Robinson a little. What? Why? Because he'd come up with like a version of what would become... The Hound of the Baskervilles. The famous Sherlock Holmes story. Yes. And this was put together before Doyle wrote the story. And so rumors sort of implied, sort of, that Doyle may have poisoned him using laudanum. Because laudanum overdose or overexposure can mimic the symptoms of typhoid, which was actually his cause of death. And he did this to ensure that he would not be exposed and made to look like a fraud even though we have the fairy thing that happens a couple of years later <laughs> like the fairy thing that happens where you know he's exposed and made to look like a fraud and yet he doesn't kill any of the little girls who made the fairy pictures or does he <laughs> so now spoilers carter does not die immediately after the opening of the tomb And whenever he was asked why Carter was not killed, he said, Well, one might as well say that because bulldogs do not bite everybody, therefore bulldogs do not exist. I think he needs to go back to syllogism school, but whatever. Sound logic in my book. World's greatest detective in balderdash. So we need to introduce you to another character so that we can kill him off like we are Game of Thrones up in here. But I would like to take a little moment and introduce you to a fine gentleman known as Arthur Weagle, or Weagle, or Weagle. I'm not sure. Arthur. Artie. We're going to call him Artie. So he was a fellow Egyptologist, turned journalist, and he had a bit of a grudge, shall we say, against Carter and Carnivon. He had been barred from entering the tomb except for the public. Ooh, that would make a grudge. And he was also, like the official inspector of antiquities to the Egyptian government. So he like had a job to do and they were very much kind of poo-pooing him. And I think this is maybe to do with the fact that the Egyptians were, you know, wanting to own the things that were important to their own cultural history. And he represented that government. But he had a very interesting perspective on both the excavation and the way the curse unfolded in the papers, sort of the narrative of the curse. Now, you might say that he was an early victim of the curse. You would, would you? Well, you might. He wrote this play, and the purpose of the play was to have the actors put the spirit of Akhenaten, who is Tutankhamun's father, the heretic pharaoh, to rest, because it said that there was a curse placed upon Akhenaten, which would ensure that he would wander the deserts of Egypt for all eternity and never get to go to the afterlife. Now, during the playing of this play both of the leading actresses one of whom was his own wife became very ill suddenly 
and one of them went blind and the other one had a severe stomach illness that, you know, kind of came out of nowhere. And then they both survived. But it was, they're in the middle of doing this play about the heretic Pharaoh, kind of doing something that would be considered heretical to the ancient culture. And immediately there's like a sandstorm. One woman is almost blinded and the other woman is severely ill in a different way at the same time. And so people just kind of raised eyebrows if they hadn't shaved them because they lost a loved one. And he was sort of fascinated by the idea of the curse, but at the same time, he thought that it was an overactive imagination at work. And he said, I must admit that very, some very strange things, call them coincidences if you will, have happened in connection with the Lux excavations. So he was curious, he was fascinated, but he was also skeptical. And he was also very direct. He wrote Carter to tell him about the series of mistakes that he and Carnivon had made while excavating the tomb and let him know where he stood with the Egyptian government. He wrote, The situation is this. You and Lord Carnivon have made the initial error when you discovered the tomb of thinking that the old British prestige in this country is still maintained and that you could do more or less what you liked, just as you used to do in the old days. You have found the tomb. However... At a moment when the least spark may send the whole magazine sky high. When the utmost diplomacy is needed. When the Egyptians have to be considered in a way in which you and I are not accustomed. And when the slightest false step may do the utmost disservice to your own enemy. You open the tomb before you notify the government representative. And the natives all say that you might therefore have had an opportunity of stealing some of the millions of pounds worth of gold of which you talk. I give you an example of native gossip against you. Damn, he dropped the glove. He did. And he was also observing as they opened the tomb for the first time. And he watched Carnivon, who seemed to be like in boisterous spirits. He was joking about having concerts down there once they were done with the excavations. And he just turns to one of his friends, a fellow journalist, and he's like, if he goes down in that spirit, I give him six weeks to live. A threat? A prophecy. Hmm. And this was printed in the papers. I'm sure it was. Now, in addition to his weird play incident, there was another weird, cursy, supernatural Egyptian incident that involved Arthur Wiggle Waggle Waggle. So it happens that he was working with Carter and Carnivon in the Valley of the Kings. And there was a minor incident involving a, um, a mummified cat. So they discovered a mummified cat that it had been painted black with yellow eyes, and they brought it back to the dig house and accidentally placed it in Weagle's room. And he returned late that night and tripped over the coffin and bruised his shin. Curse. Right. Well, wait, there's more. Can you imagine if that was it? Like he bruised his shin. <laughs> Curse. Curse. The butler had previously been bitten by a scorpion, and he had become delirious, and so he was shouting that he was being... Chased by a gray cat. And so he kept screaming about this and Artie was trying to get sleep. And he swears or swore, I guess, that he saw the cat mummy turn its head toward him and glare at him angrily. Oh, it's spooky. It's very spooky. And then he was woken about an hour later by a loud noise. A meow? No, he noticed the coffin that held the cat mummy had split in two. Okay, that's scary. And he woke up as a cat jumped over his bed and out the window. 
And he went to the window and looked out and saw the house's tabby cat staring into the bushes with its back arched, hissing. Okay, that's creepy. I always said, like, if I'm not a big, I'm, pr- I'm a huge skeptic. I know you know that. But, like, I've always said, like, if an animal is, like, barking at nothing or, like, growling at nothing, that's when I freak out. Unless they're seen out like our dog. Well, that's different. Yeah. So all of these mummy curse stories were being published and being eaten up by the public. The British Museum was even sent many souvenirs of mummies and pieces of mummies that people had collected on their way out of Egypt at the gift shop. So there's even another mummy story that was in the public consciousness about Walter Herbert Ingram. In 1885, he volunteered to join the Gordon Relief Expedition in Egypt, which was this military dash to rescue a crazy evangelist, General Gordon, from an Islamic uprising in Khartoum. And the Hampshire Telegraph in 1896 explains that a mummy was purchased by the adventurer Walter Herbert Ingram from the British Council in Luxor and sent home. The mummy was that of a priest of Thetis, and it bore a mysterious inscription, which was long and blood-curdling. It set forth that whoever disturbed the body of this priest should himself be deprived of decent burial, and he would meet with a violent death, and his mangled remains would be carried down by a rush of water to the sea. That's ominous. So, friendly. while Hi. hunting in Somaliland, now Somalia, Ingram was gored and trampled by an elephant. So by the time his companions were able to reach his remains days later... Oh, why weren't they able to get him right away? Because it had been raining. But they found only a handful of bones because the rest had been washed away. Oh my gosh! So that mummy is actually now in the Rhode Island School of Design. You can go see it. No further cursing from it. Was there actually even a like like a curse in Tut's tomb? Was it like you walked in and they like had a neon sign blinking? Beware! All who enter here shall be gored by elephants and trampled to death immediately. Well, the papers would tell you there was. So supposedly there was a clay plaque above the tomb that said, As to anyone who violates my body, which is in the tomb, and who shall remove my image from my tomb, he shall be hateful to the gods, and he shall not receive water on the altar of Osiris. Neither shall he bequeath his property to his children forever and ever. Bum, bum, bum. And now supposedly, Carter took this plaque and buried in the sand so that none of the workers, the Egyptian workers, would be frightened by it. The superstitious savages. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so now also they found these four magical bricks. These magic bricks. And they were at the cardinal compass points, each point associated with the four sons of Horus. Now the newspapers reported the curse. Of course they did. Saying, it is I who hinder the sand from choking the secret chamber and who repel that one who would repel him with the desert flame. I have set aflame the desert. I have caused the path to be mistaken. I am for the protection of the Osiris. This is to repel the enemy of Osiris in whatever form he may come. That reeks of fan fiction, but okay. 
And also they would include things like, as death shall come on swift wings to he who toucheth the tomb of the Pharaoh. So for anyone who doesn't know, the journalism standards of today and yesterday have a very strict character count. You have to be very conscious of things like extra spaces after periods, and you are to shorten words whenever possible. It is why I'm allergic to the spelling of four words that includes an S. It's forward works just as well. I believe what we are looking at here is a character count version of the curse. Who knows where they're getting their information from? They may have been getting it from our friend Arthur Weagle Weigel. So as I said, he was actually the inspector of antiquities for the Egyptian government. And he may have accidentally sort of kind of maybe created the curse and also tried to destroy it, which gives him an interesting role in all this. People considered him to be an Egyptologist who was only a journalist by accident. And he did publish a collection of essays on Tutankhamun. One essay in particular was called The Malevolence of Ancient Egyptian Spirits, and it denied the supernatural. And he went on to say that there was especially no validity to the claim that there was a written curse inside the the tomb of King Tut. And he drew a careful line between grave robbers and modern archaeologists. He said even if there had been a curse, modern excavators whose sole aim is saving the dead from native pillage and their identity from the obliterating hand of time are in a different category than the grave robbers, obviously. And thus, no harm has come to those who have entered these ancient tombs with reverence. Well, isn't he putting himself all high and mighty there? But he had kind of made the sour grapes prophecy about Carnivon's death. Remember, if he goes down in that spirit, I give him six weeks to live. And his granddaughter later wrote, He couldn't think for the life of him why he'd said it. Just one of those prophetic utterances which seemed to issue without intention from the subconscious brain. Oh, yes, that happens to me all the time. I do that all the time. Yeah, Yeah. I curse things constantly. Just make, you know, future predictions, whatever. And he did die of liver cancer in 1934, in the January of that year. But people said that he had just always sort of had that Eeyore cloud bad luck hanging around him after the tomb was opened. There was one description that said... Difficulties and failures have obstructed the path of Arthur Weagle ever since the Tut discovery. He seemed to be the victim of some queer fate that never let him alone. He died, I believe, the unfortunate victim of the curse of failure and hardship, which he himself had wished for others. This is sort of a godsmack idea. And several of his friends and colleagues did use the word curse in a reference to his drug addiction. That's interesting. That's an interesting kind of possible origin to this. And it, Budge, Ernest Budge, our bunkum friend from earlier, said, He died the unfortunate victim of a curse. It is not perhaps a royal curse, but one self-inflicted. Oh, clever Budge. He was. There's a caricature of him that I just, I may have to post on the website because he's fabulous. So this language is used around this sort of unfortunate fellow who, you know, said, I give him six weeks to live, six weeks before Carnivon died, and then spent a good part of his career trying to debunk the idea of curses. He dies, and people are like, well, he had a curse. He was, it was a self-inflicted curse, but a curse, no less. Right. But then we come to some of the more colorful features associated with the curse of King Tut. Okay, yeah, fine. 
The Pharaoh's Curse. This chapter of The Pharaoh's Curse is entitled The Cobra and the Canary. And it's about a a, co- a cobra and a canary. Clever. Yes. Good job. Mm-hmm. So a writer called Herbert Winlock said that when Carter came out last October alone, he got a canary bird in Cairo in a gilded cage to cheer up what he figured was going to be a lonely and deserted house. And the foreman associated with the dig called the canary Malbrook, a bird of gold that was going to bring luck and God willing gold. Egyptians called King Tut's tomb the tomb of the golden bird. People ascribed the luck of finding the tomb with the bird. A writer said that it almost had a halo around its cage. It was given a place of honor. Calendar, who was another excavator, was staying at Carter's house, and the bird was there too. But one afternoon, he heard a fluttering and squeaking from the other room. That's not good. Mm-mm. Is it the ghost cat? Yes. Ghost Sylvester got Tweety. He went in the room where the bird was kept, and in the cage with the bird was a giant cobra. Oh, no way. In the act of gulping down the canary, quote, halo and all. Oh, man. And according to reporting at the time, cobras were uncommon in this area. Also important for the purposes of our idle speculation to note that cobras grew out of the head of kings. And so people believed that the king had sent his serpent to kill the bird who helped them uncover his tomb. All right, so this was seen as, of course, a very bad omen. And the New York Times reported that already in this land of superstition, myths are beginning to grow up. Out of the canary's death, the most fantastic stories are being manufactured. So it has been easy to weave a legend that brought in the little bird which in some ways symbolized the modern spirit of civilization and the cobra, which stood for the old dynasties. So we've talked about some of the cases that have been associated with either other mummies or King Tut's mummy. Let's go over a list of some of the characters. The canon curse characters. Well, it's hard to get like a specific canon. Like every book and every website has like a different list. Are you telling me there are no facts here? Well, I mean, these people died. It's just just if it was associated. so You mean they're not 300 years old? I am outraged. So, of course, we have Lord Carnivon, who died four months and seven days after the opening of the tomb of Septicemia. Now, two of his associates died shortly after. George J. Gold, who visited the tomb, died in the French Riviera on May 16th of 1923, after he developed a fever following his visit. He was a wealthy financier who had been associated with Carnivon. And now Joel Wolfe, who was also another elite, fell ill and died as well. Now Colonel Aubrey Herbert, Carnivon's half-brother, became nearly blind at one time. And he took some poor advice and decided to have his teeth extracted, and that that would restore his sight. Science! Now, the dental operation led to blood poisoning, which we'd also call, like, being septic now, and he died in London on September 26 of 1923. Now, he wrote in his diary shortly before, on September 4th, I had a dream last night, and I went into Mary's room this morning to repeat it to her and make her remember it. 
The first lines were simply, my dream without correction. The third I wrote when I was awake. Ambition was amusement, but now ambition's dead. So take my pretty fellow, a little dose of lead. Then you and your ambition will soon again be wed. And do you find that really creepy? Super creepy. So Sir Archibald Douglas Reed was a radiologist who x-rayed Tutankhamun's mummy. And he died on January 15th of 1924 from a mysterious illness. Now, Hugh Evelyn White, who was a noted Egyptologist, committed suicide in 1924. He was one of the first archaeologists to enter the Tut burial chamber. And he actually shot himself in a taxi cab in Leeds. He'd been summoned to participate in an inquest related to the death of his friend, Mary Helen Nind. Now, she was a music teacher that was infatuated with Evelyn White, and she had killed herself after he supposedly rejected her advances. And also supposedly, in his suicide note, he wrote, I knew there was a curse upon me, though. I have leave to take those manuscripts to Cairo. The monks told me the curse would work all the same. Now it has done so. Now, no one knows what he's talking about. But the word curse is in his suicide note. And Egypt stuff. And definitely King Tut curse. But... It's also not crazy to think that he was affected by his friend and possible love interest's suicide. Yeah, uh, suicide clusters are a thing. That happens. That's not just a story. Maybe we'll do an episode on it. Now, A.C. Mace, who is an American associated with it. That's a badass name, by the way. It is. He was a member of the excavation team, and he died in 1928 from arsenic poisoning. Like, it tastes like garlic. Be careful. Be careful. Now, Mervyn Herbert, Carnivon's half-brother and the full brother of Aubrey Herbert, died on May 26, 1929 of malarial pneumonia. Now, Captain Richard Bethel, Carter's private secretary, was found dead in a club in Mayfair in 1929. Now, Bethel had supposedly brought back relics from Tut's tomb and presented them to his father. Now, supposedly... There's a lot of We're supposedly. Like There's a supposedly lot. There's a lot. lot. Both men had homes stock full of treasures from the Valley of the Kings. That's probably true. Now, the most known example was this alabaster vase. So after Captain Bethel was found dead. He wasn't found dead in the baths. Yes. It was very odd. He was young. He was like 36 or something. He was a very young guy in very good health. And he was just found dead. Just dead. So his father, Lord Westbury, was very stricken with grief by his son's unexpected death. He was prescribed drugs for insomnia and depression and was visited daily by a nurse. On February 21st of 1930, he threw himself out of his window from his seventh floor apartment in St. James Court. Now the verdict on his death was suicide while of unsound mind. And he left a note and it said, I really can't stand any more horrors and hardly see what good I'm going to do here. So I'm making my exit. As I am where, I hope to meet you again. Goodbye, and if you are right, all will be well. We'll say no more. Au revoir. Affectionately yours, Westbury. 
and friends reported that he had been worrying about the strange circumstances of the death of his son. And people who knew him said he believed that the curse of the pharaoh was the overriding reason why he thought he was going to die. And there's some interesting little mm, things about his death. Oh, yes? Mm, was there was, a ghost cat? There was a ghost cat. Was he on the Titanic? All true. But his maid had come in just a few minutes earlier and tried to wake him. And she'd gone to build the fire for the day because it's February in London and it's cold. And he was like, let me sleep like five more minutes. And so she left. But while she was in his room, she didn't notice any notes laid out. And she essentially walked out of the door and went to the kitchen to make tea. And as she's like stoking that fire, she hears the crash. So it's a very short amount of time and she comes back in and there are these notes on the table that she hadn't noticed when she was there just moments earlier. So that struck her as odd. Also, people who saw his fall noted that he did the somersault midair. That's odd. Right? It makes me think about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory when he's like flipping and they have to belch to get down. You have the most random associations. Old man doing somersaults in the air. That's not what you think of? I think a mummy pushed him. (laughs) I think if he'd belched, everything would be fine. And there was like a high platform outside of his window that he would have had to climb over in order to get up there and jump. And he was like kind of a feeble old dude. And people were like, that's weird. I don't know about all that. But he like somersaulted and crashed through some glass and like according to witnesses, like gurgled a couple of times and then died. Yuck. A curse. And also his hearse hit and killed an eight-year-old boy, Joseph Greer, on the way to the crematorium. That's suspicious. I've just got to say, that's re- like to be hit by a curse is the old. I'm sorry, not curse, hearse. To be hurt, hit by a curse hearse? It's a curse hearse. Is the ultimate irony. And it rhymes, and that's just not fair. So Budge, who we've mentioned a couple of times, he keeps coming up, right? He was known as a bold explorer, a cantankerous individual, and a creative author who quite literally devoted his life to writing about ancient Egypt. And he died about 10 months after Weigel. And he was in the know and in the Egypt scene enough that he received a telegram from Carnivon on December 1st of 1922 that said, One line just to tell you that we found the most remarkable find that has ever been made, I expect, in Egypt or elsewhere. Which is maybe a humble brag? I don't know. And he died in 1936. And this year saw a great deal of Egyptologists dying off. There were seven deaths of prominent members of the field of Egyptology, and five of those were English. Now, important point. They were all like in their 60s and had been traveling in like malarial infested areas. Or it was a curse. Or it was a ghost cat. I mean, you know. Whatever. Be that way. Or it was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle poisoning people. But you're just going to take my book, too. <laughs> this won't do it at all. The fairies told me to do it. But at the time of his death, Budge had been conducting a large-scale investigation into mummy wheat. And he did not believe that it was going to germinate. And he was very much in the business of debunking these crazy supernatural claims associated with Egypt. This is our kind of guy. Yes, he is. But he also wrote... Never print what I say in my lifetime. But that mummy, that mummy case, 
It calls the wool. It's very much like us. Very skeptical, but someone's like, hmm. But you get one. You get the thing you can't let go. Like, you get the, like, no, it was totally, you know, that thing, the screamy thing. Yeah. He would, he would have been, oh, oh, no. I think I've just added budged our pantheon. (laughs) Well, he did translate the Egyptian book of the dead. That's key. That's a big thing. And this is important because it's considered to be one of the only ancient Egyptian texts that really made an impact on followers of the occult or spiritualists. And so maybe he died from the curse and maybe he was just fat and old because he's wonderfully chubby in all of his pictures. Now, of course, you may be asking, well, what does Howard Carter have to say about this? Because he's still alive. No curse has gotten held Howie. Not at this time. He said, it has been stated in various quarters that there are actual dangers hidden in Tutankhamun's tomb. Mysterious forces called into being by some malefic to take vengeance on whomsoever should dare pass its portals. There was perhaps no place in the world freer from risk than the tomb. Unpardonable and mendacious statements of this nature have been published and repeated in various quarters with a story of malicious satisfaction. It is indeed difficult to speak of this form of ghostly calumny with calm. If it be not actually libelous, it points in that spiteful direction, and all sane people should dismiss such interventions with contempt. He also said, It is rather too much to ask me to believe that some spook is keeping watch and ward over the dead Pharaoh, ready to wreak vengeance on anyone who goes too near. Now, he survived a while after the opening of the tomb and died of lymphoma at the age of 64. Now, interesting. Side note, his tombstone says, May your spirit live. May you spend millions of years. You who loves Thebes, sitting with your face to the north wind, your eyes beholding happiness. That's like lovely. I know. I love it. There are more random things attributed to the curse of King Tut, such as Sir Lee Stack, the Governor General of Sudan, died on the 19th of November in 1924, and he was assassinated while driving through Cairo. Now, there's also an interesting connection with the cousin of Edgar Allan Poe, Philip Livingston Poe, who visited the tomb of Tutankhamun in 1923, and people joked that he was going to be a victim of the curse. And then he died. He died. Suddenly. And I thought it was funny because Tofiel said that Poe would have been inspired by the mummy unwrappings. And we had a Poe. Who was inspired by dying of the curse. I don't think that's what he meant. And then another random one is Prince Ali Kamal Fami Bey of Egypt, who died on July 10th of 1923. Oh, July 10th of 1923. Let me tell you. There was a terrible thunderstorm. It was a dark and stormy night. It was a dark and stormy night in London. And it was reported that shell-shot soldiers had been severely disturbed by the noises and the bright flashes. And I'm going to tell you the story of a murder that happened that night in a downtown hotel in the West End of London, where Ali Camille Fami Bey was murdered by his wife of less than six months Mary Marguerite. <gasps> no. Yes. So Fami Bey was an Egyptian prince, and he purchased his title. He's a society figure who was regularly involved with the Egyptian king. And he married French socialite Mary Marguerite on December 26th, 1922. 
There were rumors of ongoing domestic abuse, explosive public fights, and much whispering. And she had converted to Islam in order to marry Fami Bey, and people said that this meant that she obviously could never get a divorce from Fami Bey ever. And he was known as something of a playboy prince. <laughs> of course. So on July 9th, Mary Marguerite was in the hotel bar at the Hotel Savoy in London. And she was asked by a man playing piano at the bar if she would like any special music. And she said, I don't want any music. My husband has threatened to kill me tonight. And I'm not in the mood for music. So that seems ominous. Nowadays, can you imagine someone saying that? You'd be like, do we need to call the police? And they're like, okay, you want me to play piano, man? All right. Sing us a song. Quickly change the subject. A few hours later, around 2 a.m., a hotel employee passed by and saw Fami Bay and Mary Marguerite going at it in the hallway. Not like that. No. Like fighting. Screaming, yelling. And he's British. And he's like, whoa, so much emotion in public. This will never do. And so he packs them up and puts them back in their suite. And he goes on pushing his cart. And suddenly he hears three gunshots ring out. And then he returns to the scene of the crime, as it were, and finds Marie Marguerite standing over Fami Bay's body. And he's bleeding from his head. She has visible bruising on her neck. And her nightgown, which is white, of course, has some blood splots on it. And there's a pistol on the ground near her feet, along with empty cartridges. And she's weeping and repeating over and over, What have I done? What shall I do? I have killed him! I'm like thinking of all the headlines that are probably out about this. Let's see, some not like give me the most not PC I was say, headlines. Oh, no, oh, like, oh not like, PC. Yeah. It'd be like Arab prince <laughs> oh, killed by Parisian mistress Ooh. in the dead of night. It's yeah, not far off. But what's Tut got to do with it? Do with it. So Fami Bay actually claimed that he was a descendant of King Tut. Can you buy that right, too? Yes, you can't TM. And they, if, you, if you would like to buy... <laughs> rights to claim right. King Tut as an ancestor? You can go on our website. And oh, it's, for it's there. Twenty nine ninety nine. But he claimed he was the descendant of King Tut. And I guess in the spirit of that conjecture, they had visited the tomb in Luxor while on their honeymoon. They'd actually watched excavators bringing out goods and things from the tomb and she had her photo taken while lying in an open empty egyptian sarcophagus which seems like poor taste but i won't judge and lord carnivon had attended their wedding and several of their big parties while they were both in egypt oh he so got the curse all on them he was like have some curse have some curse now happy wedding hi my fingers are crossed you can't give me cooties and in addition to all this cleopatra's needle the obelisk in London was visible from their hotel window. So, whatever. Curse stuff is already all over the newspapers. And an Egyptian prince had just been murdered in London. Nobody's going to let that go. They're going to say it's the curse. And they're going to write about it a lot. Of course. I mean, this is going to sell papers. So, in this case... Race played such a huge, gross role. It's really hard to read. And it's as much about the fact that he was of Middle Eastern descent as it is that he maybe kind of beat her all the time. Don't do that. (laughs) And so she alleged that he'd been asking her to do 
unnatural sex stuff. Oh, my. And that the unnatural sex stuff had caused her to need a, quote, delicate operation. Oh, my mind is just, like, going. (laughs) And she wanted to return to Paris in order to have this surgery that she needed because of his weird sex stuff. And he told her she could not go to Paris to have this surgery, and that's why this whole fight started. So in addition to that colorful thing that nobody was going to ask about, because this is fucking London in 1923. Can you draw us a diagram? Can you just tell me if he touched you in your bathing suit area? She hires this guy who I think may be like a slightly, slightly sleazier English Clarence Darrow is kind of the feel. He's called the Great Defender. He has some really interesting arguments. And his name's Marshall Hall. And he says at trial that Marie Marguerite's greatest mistake was this. Almost throughout the miserably tragic life of six months, this treacherous Egyptian beast pursued her with unspeakable request. And because she, immortal as she may have been, resisted him, he heaped cruelty and brutality upon her until she was changed by fear from a charming, attractive woman to the poor, quaking creature hovering on the brink of nervous ruin. This poor, fragile woman. Oh, yes. And then in his closing arguments, he went on to say, she made one great mistake, possibly the greatest mistake a woman of the West can make. She married an Oriental. No. Don't say that. Oh, my God. It gets worse. Like, he goes on. He's like, please don't close the door and put her out in the desert. Let her come back to the Western world. Oh, it's so, it's awful. But it worked because everyone was awful in 1923. And she was uh, acquitted. What may have helped that more than the racist arguments, if anything could, was a letter she'd written on her honeymoon that said, like, if any harm should come to me, should you find me dead, please go. Please lock him up because he's totally going to kill me. Why did she marry him? That's nuts. Because he was rich as fuck. Like he had more money than God. You mean King Tut? Yeah, he had more money than Osiris is what I said. And she was not allowed to inherit his fortune because she you know, killed him. Even though she tried to pull one of those, I'm pregnant with my late husband's baby and I have to have his money to take care of said baby. She tried to pull one of those, but it was not allowed. So that sucks. Sounds like she earned it if she needed special surgery for her. Whatever. Whatever. So with all of these crazy stories associated with the curse in the papers, and everyone is blaming this plaque that was found this tablet, and these magic bricks. So what's the truth? What's the truth behind this curse? Can I Can I go? Sure. It's imagination. Some of it. Okay. So give me that ounce. Give me that kernel of truth in this corny, corny joke. Well, there's some, there's some truth. So speaking of Egyptian curses in general, because sometimes, I mean, as we've seen, supposedly everything is cursed. From Egypt, we got cats, we got mummy boards, we got mummies, we have just going into the tomb, <laughs> everything. So some mastaba, the early non-pyramid tombs, with walls in Giza, were actually inscribed with curses meant to terrify those who would try to desecrate or rob it. Now most of these come from the Old Kingdom around the 24th or 25th century BC. 
which is more than a millennia before Tutankhamun's time. And they're found on everyone's tomb. Non-royals, royals, pharaohs, etc. Often they warn of removing stones or bricks and promise of retribution in the afterlife. There is one big exception there. In the 6th dynasty, an official, Mini, who informed any potential tomb violator that the crocodile would be against him in the water and the snake on the land. Oh, I saw it as the crocodile and the hippo. Oh, hippos eat people. I know that now. When you told me that, I didn't believe you, and then you ruined my life. But yeah, if I walked in a tomb and I saw like the hippo will be against you in the water, gone. Done. Over. So the plaque thing, that is probably just a story. There's really Aww. no evidence of the plaque. Carter denies it. Carter was like, this whole business is silly. But the magic bricks, the magic bricks, they're real. And they lead to Oz. No, they're not gold. Everything else was gold. No, so these are mud bricks. They're not fired. They're dried out in the sun. And they're inscribed with spells from chapter 151 of the Book of the Dead. And they're often found in burial chambers of royal and elite tombs dating from the New Kingdom. And are they like the four cardinal points? Yes. And so in the Book of the Dead, it is stated what they should be. So the north one was a mummiform image with an open mouth, and it was to repel aggressors of the dead. And the inscription, according to the Book of the Dead, says, One, oh one, one who comes to wrestle, I will not let you wrestle. One who comes to attack, I will not let you attack. I will be your wrestler. I will be your attacker. I am the protector of the Osiris. Now the west was the Dejed pillar, and it was an amulet to chase away a malicious entity called a Kaper, hit the hidden of face. Ooh, that's good. That's so creepy, metal. Right? And according to the Book of the Dead, it would say, one who comes in search for the approach, veiled of face who illuminates his veil. I am the one who stands behind the Dejed pillar. I am indeed the one who stands behind the Dejed pillar, the day of repelling slaughter. I am the protector of the Osiris. So the east brick would be an Anubis jackal, a vigilant figurine protecting the dead from an attack of aggressors. And it would say, according to the Book of the Dead, wake, watch, one who is one the mountain. Your moment is repelled. I have repelled your moment, aggressor. I am the protector of the Osiris. I have repelled your moment, aggressor, is like my new... Favorite thing to say on Twitter. <laughs> Flame war me, bitch. Speaking of, the South Brick was a reed or a torch to fight demons termed, ooh, I can't even say it. It's S-J-F-W. And it said, I'm the one who snares the sand at the wall of the hidden chamber, the active combatant who repels him to the flame of the desert. I have set alight the desert. I have deflected the ways. I am the protector of the Osiris. So do some of these words and phrases sound familiar? That flame of the desert thing, I think, was in some newspapers somewhere. In the sand. So it's conjectured that they took snippets from each of these and put them together 
to create the curse. And then they abbreviated it to the character limit. Like, anyone who enters your swift wings death's going to get you. Just made it sound good. Made it sound even scary. Made it sounds pretty scary without anything. I think it's badass without any alteration. But, you know. It's better if it's a giant tablet warning sign that you have to move before you ever get into the tomb and go in anyway. Also, they were put in little niches in the burial chambers. And not in just King Tut's burial chamber, in many royal burial chambers. But the tomb of King Tut being the most complete ever found is the sole royal burial chamber where all four niches were found with their contents sealed inside. In, Such important information. But they were in odd positions. Wait, what? They weren't where they were supposed to be. So Carter, That makes a curse. Maybe. So Carter actually discovered five bricks in the tomb of well, Tutankhamun. Extra ones what killed everybody. Well, four b- bricks were placed in the walls of the burial chamber, but a fifth one, the torch one, was placed on the ground of the treasury at the feet of the famous Anubis statue between the poles of the carrying shrine. So the king had the standard amulets, but there was the extra one. What was it? Osiris. So he had an actual Osiris guarding him. Right. So all the other ones say, I'm the protector of Osiris. What did that one say? Like, watch out. (laughs) It's me. So the Osiris brick bears the eastern spell that's usually on the Anubis brick, the protector against aggressors. And the Anubis brick has no inscription. Only terrible intentions and wrath and raw power. Five bricks, Jacob. Right. It is odd. It's very odd. And so, of course, these are protective kind of amulets and symbols some egyptologists think that these bricks these very basic mud bricks right because everything else is like gold or incredibly ornate pottery precious stones alabaster etc right they think it might be related to bricks that were used in childbirth wait what you doing do with brick when you had a baby well you raise the woman kind of above the ground to make them more accessible you make them a table like you make them like the table where you actually have the babies now and so it's it's kind of obvious to say okay they're using this birth they're used for the rebirth with the pharaohs okay yes it's cyclical it's opposites it's redoing it got it i like that So while the curse that was presented in the papers, the actual written curse, is just a story, there was protective, one could call them spells or inscriptions, within the tomb of King Tut. Now, there's been a lot of refutation of the curse. In 1934, Herbert Winlock, the Mets Museum director, published in the New York Times about this. Now, he was there at the tomb. I think we've quoted him already, actually. And he wrote in response to recently published reports that Albert M. Lithgow, who have not mentioned, an Egyptian curator at the Met, had recently become ill due to the curse. And he said, There's nothing mysterious in Mr. Lithgow's illness. He is suffering from arteriosclerosis and has had a stroke. Debunked. 
The Boston hospital, in which he is patient, has been so harassed by so many persons telephoning about the cursed. He said, to the best of my knowledge, there was no inscription in the tomb or on the any object inside it on which any curse was inscribed. And he kind of published a chart showing that in the last 12 years, only six Europeans had died from the curse that had been present at the opening of the tomb or the opening of the sarcophagus. So he said, the so-called curse of Tut is a superstition so wholly devoid of foundation that only the most credulous and ill-informed persons can give a moment's credence to it. Whoops. Boom. I think we've given several moments credence to it. It's fun to talk about. And so this has continued to be refuted. People like do this for fun, I think. Like Mark Nelson wrote a report in the British Medical Journal in 2002, concluding using statistical analysis that being in the tomb did not significantly hasten your death. The participants in the study lived on average for more than 20 years after the tomb was open, whether they visited it or not. Okay, so, I mean, Mark Nelson had his stats. And I'm not going to argue with a man that has a computer program and knows how to use it. So, maybe it's not the actual magic of the curse. I mean, obviously, it's got to be... Tomb toxins. Aleister Crowley. What? Tomb toxins. Aleister Crowley? Fungus. What? What? Aleister Crowley. You explain. Oh, what fungus? Oh, it's a ridiculous theory. <laughs> okay. That supposedly there might have been bacteria, ancient bacteria, or fungus such as aspergillus that could cause these illnesses, which they apparently have never seen a case of aspergillus. <laughs> and this is an absolutely ridiculous theory that this could be the cause of it. But you will read about it as people trying to debunk it, but... It's really just bullshit. Okay, so yours is bullshit. Mine's clearly yeah, real. Right. Al- Alistair Crowley, the the demon? The beast. The beast? The beast. Do you want to talk about it? Why not? So I'm going to introduce you to Alistair Crowley. Oh, God, please, no. I am. I'm summoning him. No, but like, let me give you a mental image. Let me give you a, a point of reference. Have you ever seen Apocalypse Now? Mm-hmm. You remember how Marlon Brando like has this moment of brilliance at the end when he's Kurtz and he's like rubbing his bald head and he's like in this weird robe and he's like the horrors, the horrors. Definitely. So that's kind of what Aleister Crowley looks like and dresses like. Wonderful. Okay, so keep that in your mind as we go through the story, that Marlon Brando moment. Let us tell the story. He was born on an October twelfth, just like you. Of 1875. I was not born in 1875. And his parents were strict fundamentalist Christians who belonged to the Plymouth Brethren sect. And his father was a lay minister. Now, Aleister Crowley will eventually, over the course of his life, stage the most epic, like, I'm still not over it, teenage rebellion you've ever seen, ever. He is the male equivalent to the Hot Topic founder. So he did not like so much the Plymouth Brethren. And he said, I had arrived at the conclusion that the Plymouth Brethren were an exceptionally detestable crew. And I wanted a supreme spiritual sin. A sin. But I hadn't the faintest idea how to go about it. Oh, he figured it out. He did. Took it. He has a steep learning curve. 
So he goes from like wanting to like get back at his parents and do a little sinning, like maybe lie or, you know, have a dirty thought to this. I was not content to believe in a personal devil or serve him in the ordinary sense of the word. I wanted to get hold of him personally and become his chief of staff. He wanted to be Satan's chief of staff. Yes, which is amazing. So let's add to our image of Marlon Brando in his weird robe rubbing his head. Let's add to that, that he wants to be Satan's chief of staff. Now I think we've got a pretty good working image of what Crowley is. So he, well, I mean, he called himself the Great Beast. Right. That adds a little weight to it. So he, the Antichrist was what... Yeah, FDR, you know. Crowley, whatever. Whatever, somebody. So he believed he was the reincarnation of lots of people. Lots of people? Yes. So Pope Alexander VI, who is a Borgia, the Elizabethan alchemist John Dee, Elphias Levi, who's an interesting character, he created the Marseille Tarot and sort of introduced tarot in its earliest identifiable form. Elphias Levi said, an imprisoned person with no other book than the tarot, if he know how to use it, could in a few years acquire universal knowledge and would be able to speak on all subjects with unequal learning and inexhaustible eloquence. So we thought pretty highly of what he made there. Oh, I bet he did. I mean, the, the cards told him so. Yes. And then you have um, Count Cagliostro. <gasps> Count Cagliostro. That's the Giuseppe skull. If you go check out Audio Dime, that's there. And the heretic pharaoh. <gasps> King Tut's daddy. Akhenaten. Now, he started out as a member of the Order of the Golden Dawn, and that's, you know, the Rider Waite, Tarot, Golden Dawn. But they had um, they had issues. They were not getting along very well. Who else was a member of the Golden Dawn at this time? Fucking everyone. Everyone had to be involved in some ghost club cult of some sort. Well, like William Butler Yates was in it. Uh, our bo- oh, and they butted heads. Oh, they hated each other. And then Macon, Arthur Macon, who wrote um, The Bowman. Mm-hmm. He From was, Our Angel of Mons. Yeah, story. He was in it. But they became frustrated with Crowley because he was overtly perverse, they said. And he was producing these pornographic and blasphemous writings and allegedly quite immoral. He was too outrageous for most of the London members who disapproved of his blatant sexual activities. Macon said that he and Yates, like, were such bitter enemies because Crowley could not let go of the fact that Yates is a better poet than him. Aw, he was sad. So he, like, really, 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 really decided that sex magic was the way to go. Oh, definitely. And he wanted the Golden Dawn to accept all of the sex magic, and they were like, we are proper humans, and that's not going to be happening. So Crowley packed up his shit and put on a kilt and stormed off in a huff to Loch Ness. Is he the Loch Ness monster? Yes. Solved so many mysteries in this episode. And so while he's in Loch Ness in his huff and mad at the Order of the Golden Dawn, he meets his first Scarlet Woman. Scarlet Woman? That's scandalous. She's named for the Whore of Babylon. (laughs) That's not a nice thing to call somebody. And her name was Rose. And so she felt like she was the queen of the world. And they went on a world-spanning honeymoon when he was 28 years old. And he had this... 
crazy mystical experiment while they were squatting in the Great Pyramid at Giza. And this was on April 8th or 10th of 1904. So they were deep in the king's chamber, and he was doing a hermetic ritual while Rose, like, sat there. And I'm assuming if she is anything like I imagine her, sat there and, like, played on her iPhone. Like, just like, okay, dude. Whatever. All right. Okay. Okay. And so Crowley's, like, over in the king's chamber, and he's doing his thing, and claims that the walls of the pyramid began to glow very brightly to the point where he no longer needed his candle. So uh, with they his sex magic. became backlit like the iPhone. But then Rose breaks from whatever she's watching and sits up and is like, they're waiting for you. She's like, let's wrap this up. All right, they're waiting for you. All right. <laughs> no, she chants it. They're waiting for you. They're waiting for you. They're waiting for you. They're waiting for you. And it freaks him out. And he goes on to like a, what are you doing? You're not a medium. What's going on with you? Rant and wants to know who's contacted her. Well, she reveals later that she's been speaking to just a god, just the Egyptian god Horus. Oh, of course. And she's never been trained or schooled in Egyptology. And so uh, Crowley doesn't know if she knew who Horace was, like how important he was. He's like, girl, this is kind of a big deal. But she then decides that she'll go ahead and give him the information so that he can invoke Horace. And he writes great success in his journal. She got those Horus digits. Yeah, and she gave him to Crowley, and he called, and he's like, this is actually a real phone number. I got his voicemail. This is the god Horus. <laughs> Please leave a message. Can't you just text no, no. like a normal person? God, why are you calling me? And then Horus did eventually get back in touch with Crowley, and he said that a new magical aeon had begun, and that Crowley should probably be the prophet. Of course. But then Crowley's sitting around one day and he's like, you know, Rose might be full of shit. I should check. Because this is a world where you can check things like that. But he brings her to the Bullock Museum. And neither of them have ever been before. And he basically says, like, all right, pick the guy out of the lineup. She starts walking through the museum looking for Horace. And she does pass up some representations of the god. However, when they go to the second floor, according to one biographer, Lawrence Sutton, a glass case stood in the distance, too far off for its contents to be recognized. But Rose recognized it. She cried, There he is! Who is? Horace. Crowley went toward the case and saw an image of Horace in the form of Ra Hurkut, painted upon a wooden stella of the 26th dynasty. And what's more... The exhibit bore the number 666. The mark of the beast. That is so metal, y'all. He is the beast. He is the beast. So Crowley was like, okay, fine. I guess you're not bullshitting me. You can have magic powers too. He arranges for the tablet to be translated. And he decides that the characters depicted upon the tablet would be the core characters of his new religion, Thelema. So then Rose, feeling very important, goes full on, I'm magic. 
in ounces. I keep thinking like red hot chili peppers, like blood sugar, sex magic. I know. It's all I've been saying to myself all week. And she says that she's been speaking with an intermediary who's been telling her all Horace's details. And this messenger is called Awaz. Okay, that does not sound familiar. Is that like an Egyptian god or spontaneously generated slash intuited slash? She made it up. She made it. Okay. Like if you Google it, it comes up Crowley. Like it's not got any mythological or historical basis that we can put our little finger upon. So he's apparently like a non-corporeal being. Of course. Who hangs out behind you and never lets you see his face. But he does have instructions. He says the honeymoon drawing room should be turned into a temple, which Crowley is to visit one hour no more, no less, for the next three days. And so then on April 8th or 10th, he dictates to Crowley the Book of the Law. This sounds like Joseph Smith. It's so much. But Rose becomes an alcoholic, and they eventually split up. She turns to prostitution. It's not pretty. True whore of Babylon. Mm-hmm. So. Knowing that Crowley was inspired to concoct his spontaneous religion in the Great Pyramid at Giza, knowing he would title his tarot deck the Book of Toth. And that he's the reincarnation of Tut's dad. We must, we must, we must, we would be remiss not to connect these imaginary dots. So, according to London's Curse... Which, if you want to get into this crazy, pause... Oh, go get it. Crowley arrived back in London around 1906, around the time of Fletcher Robinson's death. The guy that was killed by Arthur Conan Doyle, or the unlucky mummy, or bad luck. I've already told you that Conan Doyle killed him using laudanum, but Crowley was actually an opium enthusiast, so it's way more likely. That's not shocking. That Crowley had access to all of the opiates. It's less likely, however, that he decided to share. But assuming he did, he totally killed Fletcher. So you're saying that he gave laudanum to Fletcher Robinson to kill him and not Sir Arthur Conan Doyle (laughs) did it. Yeah, We're going Crowley because we've got a better story. So Awaz might have told him to go and poison Fletcher Robinson because he was going to discredit the magical power of ancient Egypt by publishing this article about how the unlucky mummy was not a thing. Blasphemy. And right before Fletcher Robinson dies, ostensibly of typhoid, Crowley's eldest daughter, Lilith, because of course that's her name, had died of typhoid. So there's speculation that he could have maybe taken sacrificed some no not yet we're not there yet (laughs) hold hold that thought taken something that was contaminated with typhoid germs and rubbed it on fletcher robinson chemical warfare and then the other thought is that maybe he used the laudanum to make it look like typhoid which is the way she died kind of in her honor or maybe he just poisoned them both with laudanum that's what i said so that's basically proven yeah, sure. Crowley says that Awaz told him to perform regularly depraved acts and learn to love them. <laughs> like the Egyptian prince? But he was killing people and that was a depraved act and that's basically a confession. So let's move on to Nazis. 
What? So Thelema, Theodore Roos was the head of the OTO and traveled to London to meet Crowley and talk him into becoming the head of their order. So OTO is the principal guiding hand in Nazi philosophy, which... That's what we talked about in the Indiana Jones episode, where they had the castle, and they would do all the weird acts. Yes. So Crowley was like, no, 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 I mustn't, I mustn't. But then in 1925, he dies. And he organized the order around Thelema principles. Thelema directly inspired people like Himmler in his super secret religion stuff and Hitler's having a personal astrologer and all such. And then he went to the British and was like, hi, um, let me be a spy. And they looked at him. Please? And they were like, no. <laughs> and so they kicked him out. And he went to America for a bit. During his time in America, he wrote pro-German propaganda, but he said his aim what? his aim in doing so was to write propaganda that was so poorly constructed and blatantly obvious it would just make the Germans look foolish. He's so clever. He is. The beast chief of Satan's staff. Yes. Then he descends into what we're going to call his deep metal period. Crowley is so metal. He is. So while in America, he met a woman named Leah Hersick and made her Scarlet Woman Six. Six? Six. So he's just collecting Scarlet Woman everywhere? And discarding them, and they'd like all commit suicide or die in horrible ways or become alcoholics. Or or he cursed them. Basically. With his wand. So in 1920, they set up shop in Kefalu, which is in Sicily or modern day Sicily, and created the Abbey of Thelema. The Abbey of Thelema was actually a stone farmhouse which had been abandoned. And immediately the rumors start. Black sex magic. Yes. Satanism. But there was this writer named John Bull who hated Crowley. Hated him. And one of his reports said, Already five children are in Crowley's clutches. Two he claims is his own. But the other three have been kidnapped or lured into his den, obviously, by his misguided and deluded satellites. These unhappy children are said to be half-starved and have already been taught by the beast to indulge in the vilest practices which they are made to witness, sexual debaucheries that are too disgusting to describe. In addition to his satan-worshipping child abuse shit he also had a room called the nightmare room that's scary and called his followers the devil's disciples Uh, of course he did and he would paint huge pornographic images on the walls and there was a big magic circle on the floor with a big star inside but from the description i actually think it was a like six-pointed like star of david not a pentagram locals still say that the abbey is haunted i wouldn't go there Yes, I I would. I would. Shut up. Yes, I would. I would shut up. So then we meet the man who really puts all this in motion, this man named Charles Frederick Loveday. And everyone called him Raoul. He was 23 years old in 1923, an Oxford graduate and a poet. And he'd married this woman named Betty May. As I mentioned, Loveday was a poet. And so in honor of the fact that he was a poet, I'm going to read you one of his poems now. It's called A Song of Town, and it was written in 1922. 
Sing now of London, at fall of dusk, a summer dragonfly crept from the husk, a dragonfly on whose wing run golden wires, so let down a street pavement, lamps throw their fires, dragonfly, whose wing is pricked by many a spark, electric eyes of taxis bright through the dark, dragonfly, whose life is cold and brief as dew, drone now, for London dusk, soon dead too. It's a happy poem. Yeah. Happy little dragonflies. They die. It happens. It's the thing. So Crowley called Loveday a brilliant boy, just down from Oxford, where he had been distinguished by his attainments in history. He'd long wished to meet me. For over two years, he'd studied my magical writings with the utmost enthusiasm and intelligence. His character was extraordinary. He possessed every qualification for becoming a magician of the first rank. I designed him from the first interview to be my magical heir. This was the man I needed for the last ten years. A man with every gift that a magus might need and already prepared for initiation by practically complete knowledge, not only of the elements, but of the essence of magic. God, this guy was a nut job. Oh, totally. So Hersick, or Scarlet Woman 6, said that Loveday was equal to Crowley in Thelemic authority and greater in power. So when they went to the Abbey, he brought his wife, Betty May, she was this bohemian who dressed like a gypsy and she'd been orphaned at a young age. Loveday was her third husband. She was a former prostitute and artist model. But she was this disarmingly beautiful woman. And they'd actually been to visit the unlucky mummy in the British Museum. But Crowley talked him to bringing Betty May with him to the Abbey. And he wrote him a letter that said, Best hope for a married life. I'd get out of that sordid atmosphere of bohemian London. Does it surprise you that the notoriously wicked Alistair Crowley should write this? If so, you've not understood that he is a man of brutal common sense and a loyal friend. So come live in the open air amid the beauty of nature. And they went to the Abbey, and Betty May and Alistair Crowley did not get along so well. Things continued to get worse. At one point, he threatened to sacrifice her on his altar in his temple. Oh. And whenever he wrote about her or talked about her, he just had this way of implying that she was just this vapid, soulless person. And she hated his guts as well. Loveday had always been a little peckish, but he was beginning to get really sick. Betty Mae said there's more to the story. And now we're going to talk about another cat. A mummy ghost cat? No, different one. So Disappointed. This is a stray cat. Do you know it wasn't a mummy ghost cat? In my heart of hearts, I don't believe it was a mummy cat. I, In my heart of hearts, in my dark, dark, cold heart, <laughs> I think it was. For the purpose of the story, the cat is alive. So maybe it started as a mummy ghost cat and there was really successful intervention of everyone in the magic and now it's alive. But so this cat is being a cat... And Crowley approaches it for whatever reason, and it scratches his face, the nerve of this cat. And so he captures it, because that's what you do with bad cats. And he decides that the cat is sentenced to die 
in three days and he names Love Day as its executioner. Actually, he frames it as like this cat must be sacrificed. So that's the plan. Crowley gives Love Day a special knife and says, go get that cat. And the first time that Love Day strikes the animal's neck, he fails to kill it, even though it had been given ether and was supposed to be sedated. But this unpleasant blow to the neck wakes the cat up and it starts escaping and spewing blood all over the abbey. And they're chasing the cat in their crazy robes. And this is a problem. But Love Day chases it down and frantically grabs it and manages to chop its head off with a second blow. Oh, good. And Crowley's there to collect the cat blood in a bowl. And then he consecrates it. And then he draws, and this is my favorite sentence I've ever typed in my life, so I'm going to read it to you in its entirety. He drew a cat blood pentagram on Love Day's forehead with his finger. Lovely. And then he scoops up some blood in his silver cup and tells Love Day to drink it. And as Betty Mae writes later, Love Day drained the dregs. And she says that he was poisoned by ritual cat blood. So that's why he gets sick. Eventually, Betty May and Alistair Crowley get in a fight that is so that she pulls a gun on him. Then he physically removes her from the abbey and throws her in the street. Later, they do kind of patch patch that, but Loveday is still sick. And he gives her a telegram to send to his parents to let them know that he's very, very ill. A local doctor had been by and said, man, he doesn't look good. And Crowley had said, I need to let his parents know. And so he gives Betty Mae this telegram. And instead of delivering it, she chooses to like sit down in the middle of the street and cry until someone comes to comfort her, according to Crowley. But the, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it was. Uh, and then, I mean, the telegram was never sent. But, but in the final days of Love Day's life, she reported seeing Crowley weep openly and that they went off to do this Libra Resh ritual. That was kind of to serve as a prayer for Love Day. But when they came back to the Abbey, they were greeted by someone who had been there in their steed, and he said that Love Day had died. Within an hour of his death, Love Day was in a coffin. The Italian law stipulated that a body must be disposed of within 24 hours. So Crowley spent the night tapping the casket with his wand and reciting incantations. And he presided over his funeral the next day, and this was the first time he'd ever done that. And... Like, as much as I'm, like, picking on Crowley and talking about how ridiculous he is, he wrote this thing after Love Day died in his journal, and I think it really is beautiful. He said, Raoul developed paralysis of the heart and died at once, without fear or pain. It was as if a man, tired of being indoors, had gone out for a walk. But to our larger point, and the reason we're talking about this... The date of Loveday's death was February 16th, 1923 at 4 p.m. And this is the exact same moment that Tut's tomb was being officially opened in Luxor. Oh no, it must be the curse of King Tut. No, no, Crowley's killing people, don't be silly. Loveday's official cause of death was typhoid. Again? Yes. And the death struck authorities as so strange that Mussolini kicked Aleister Crowley out of Italy. So now for some more idle speculation. After being kicked out by Mussolini because of Antichrist envy, Aleister Crowley and Hersig went to Tunis around May 1st, 1923. And who else was in Tunis this time? Who? Tell me, tell me, tell me. Marie Marguerite and Fami Bay. 
The Arab Prince. Yeah, that one. <laughs> and the Parisian Mistress. So, it's possible that they'd met in Paris a few years earlier when she was a hostess at a cabaret that he was known to frequent while he was living there with his, Victor, his lover, Victor Newberg. She was also a high-class courtesan in 1913, and there's idle speculation that he employed aristocratic working girls in order to fill the female roles in his sex magic rituals because he was with a guy. And he does describe becoming friends with a woman named Dorothy, which he acknowledges is not her real name. She's a working girl, now married to a well-connected man of means. In the same description, he says that this woman was painted many times by Augustus Johns, and there are sketches by an artist that look like Marie Marguerite down to the mole on the left side of her face. So maybe he finds out they've visited the tomb and he's like, you've got to make this right, I say to you, woman that I know from a while ago. And so he gives her instructions to dispatch Fami Bay. Why? Because they went in the tomb. So he's, he's mad that they desecrated the tomb? Okay, so my speculation on why Aleister Crowley would have a problem with Tutankhamun are very different than those written about in the book. My thought is that if he thinks he is Akhenaten reincarnated and he knows his son undoes his work... Oh, he's pissed that that his son did that. Yeah, and so he's striking down anyone who's associated with him. The author thinks that it's because of the sacrilege of desecrating the tomb. I think it has more to do with ego. But interesting. Whatever. For whatever reason, because it's interesting, he tells her to kill him. And so maybe he like either tells her to do it or he possesses her. But in his journal on July 11th, which is the day of the murder, he writes, Half asleep till noon, wretched state of conflict between duty and human weakness. I am far better in health all round these last three weeks and have done lots of good work. What is the duty? What is he talking about? Human weakness. Anyway, interesting entry. But let's continue. On July 14th, he writes, Shooting of Ollie Fortney in Savoy Hotel. This must be Thelema. This fool was shot for not knowing. Not knowing what? I don't know, but he directly mentions the guy in his journal. Yeah, that's crazy. And then on August 19th, he wrote, Begin a poem on Ollie Bay and his vizier. And he just keeps bringing it up, like an inordinate amount of times. This guy had ADD worse than I do. And he actually lived at the Savoy Hotel a few months in 1911. And I mentioned that you could see Cleopatra's needle out of the window. And he very significantly used that spot for promotion of his books in 1917 and 1918. He would stage these big events. But the most interesting connection to me is on July 3rd, an unsigned letter arrived from Marie Marguerite. And it was written in French. And it read, Please permit a friend who has traveled widely among the Orientals and who knows the craftiness of their acts to give you some advice. Don't agree to return to Egypt for any object or even Japan. Rather, abandon fortune than risk your life. Money can be recovered by a good lawyer. Think of your life. A journey means a possible accident, a poison in the flower, a subtle weapon that is neither seen nor heard remain in Paris with those who love you and will protect you. And Crowley was fluent in French. But this is an interesting letter to me because it's threatening her if she returns to Egypt. In theory, that is what informed his anger about the subject to begin with. And then he also makes this weird reference to the flower 
So, to me, the murder of our Arab prince is the one that's like one of the most loosely connected to Tut. I mean, how do you connect Crowley to the rest of the murders? Loosely. (laughs) So, apparently, in repayment for his, like, plausible deniability defense that he was going to give Marie Marguerite, he had her, while she was in London, if it's not too much trouble, could you stop by and maybe go to the hospital and smother Herbert while he's recovering from his dental surgery? Could you just do that for me real quick? Oh, sure. No problem. Cool. So that happens. And then he's back in London at the time that Bethel dies. And ah, he, and he was pushed. Not no. Dad was smothered. Bethel. Dad was smothered. Yes, and so he has several friends who were members of the Bath Club, and he would regularly go. So it's known that they were in the same place, same time. And in theory, he smothered him with his pillowy lips. I don't know. And so then, after he kills Bethel, he begins using creepy hoodoo shit to drive. Lord Westbury insane because he also has Egyptian treasures and that just won't do. So wait, he, so this author doesn't even say that maybe Crowley or someone pushed him out the window? No, he does. He absolutely does. No, no, no. Westbury's our other big one. Our other like, oh, we have crazy conjecture one. So for whatever reason, he wants Lord Westbury dead. And you may say to yourself, this is not my beautiful wife, and how the hell did Crowley get access to Lord Westbury? But I have incredible, incredible news for you. Who enlightened us. At Cafe Royal, which was a regular hangout of Aleister Crowley's, that there was a thing that happened one day. It's described thusly. Wearing extravagant yellow robes, mystically inscribed in occult symbols, and star-spangled conical hat. Crowley anointed his body with scented oil and saffron before marching into the main tea room and performing the adoration of the Egyptian sun god, the invisibility rite. He was working with a sigil from the system presented in the book known as Sacred Magic of Omalmalin, the mage which purported to bestow invisibility upon the operator. And then we get an account from a waiter who was working that day. That saw the invisibility? saw it. Oh my gosh, did he like disappear? He says, oh yes, I'd only been working here for a week when that chap come into the cafe wearing funny clothes and stood in the middle of the place and started blabbing away in some weird language. Nobody paid him any attention. But I asked the head waiter if something should be done about him. But he told me not to worry. It was just Mr. Crowley being invisible again. No. Yes. No. So he would go. It's amazing. He would go into the middle of the uh, Cafe Royal in London and put on yellow robes and stand there and do this ritual and no one would look at him because they're British and did not want to acknowledge the weird thing happening in the middle of the room, and people would be like, Alistair, honey, bless your heart, you're not invisible. And he would say to them, then why did no one say anything to me? Hmm. So you're telling me that Crowley 
made himself invisible, snuck into the Westbury home. Right, because it was right across the street from Cafe Royal. Tossed the Lord out of the house. Yes. And planted some notes. Yes. He also managed to kill several other people, either directly or indirectly, by using his sex magic. Yes. That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Shut up, it's awesome. (laughs) All right, so we've talked about a lot of different insane reasons. Insane. Sure, especially the one he just talked about. about Oh, but there's proof. Of course. In the tarot cards. I'm going to put them on the website. Mm -hmm. You mean the... Crowley deck, the deck of Toth? Toth, right, because his deck is all based with... all full of Egyptian symbolism. Right, and there are confessions to all of these murders on the tarot cards. For sure. I found it. It's an original theory. I'm going to have links. Anyway, or I'm going to have images and full descriptions and things. Because I'm not done with this crazy yet. <laughs> it's crazy. It's stupid. I love it. So we refuted the ideas that there was any sort of plaque with a curse. That there also was any fungus with a curse. That's just silly. Or any kind of... Black magician murderer. With That's curse. just oh, ridiculous. Yeah, I know it is. But it's fun. But without a doubt, this curse has stuck. It is still around. It was the inspiration for the Universal Monster movies, for the remake with Brendan Fraser, for with which is the really good. Like, remake. Well, there's a, there's like a remake coming out like next year or something with Tom Cruise. Whatever. Yeah, I got excited. Is he the mummy? Because he's I'll see not. It. It's a female mummy. Ooh. Well, that fits. But there are some definite sociological issues that are related to why this curse hit home so hard with the Victorians at the time. Of course, there's concern of scientific hubris, backlash against scientists playing God. I mean, you can see this in Percy Shelley's wife's, Mary Shelley, Frankenstein. This desecration of sacred burial grounds by men of science. In the letter pages of the New York Times, it was written, science having abolished the supreme is no doubt suitably employed in the ghoulish task of rifling an ancient tomb. It would be more becoming to Christian nations to take the bodies of the priests and kings now lying in the defilement of their public museums and reverently restore them to their sacred resting places. Now, Christian Freling wrote in his book, The Face of Tutankhamun, in 1992, the balance of opinion was that the archaeologists were transgressing a deeply felt taboo and excluded they would surely pay for it. Like Dr. Faustus, Frankenstein, and Jekyll, the scientists who had dug in the sand would be destroyed by the results of their researches because they had gone too far. Oh my god, you're exactly right. It is that motif, isn't it? It's Dr. Jekyll, it's Dr. Faustus. Frankenstein. It's all the people Frankenstein. who choose to put themselves above the natural order of things receiving divine punishment. You can see these ideas of, of the fear of science, fear of advancement, and anxieties related to it. Even whenever this kind of Egyptian stuff sprung back into our modern worries of curses and other supernatural things such as like with the in the 1970s with the chariots of the gods oh god and astro egyptology or german author philip vanderberg you know was 
going through different explanations for the curse, saying they could be of alien origin. Obviously. It's Uranium-lined tombs. Cyanide extracted from peach pits. I did not think you were going to outdo me. Oh, wait. Chambers magnifying the Earth's magnetic field in such a way as to ensure that unlucky visitors were driven to madness. I thought the Aleister Crowley thing was the craziest shit we were going to hear tonight. Okay, continue. Now, H. Ryder Haggard, who we've mentioned before, you know, wrote King Solomon's Mines, the master of imperialist adventure stories, loved Egyptology. And he really had a respect for the power of these long-dead Egyptians. And he claimed... He even claimed that he was an Egyptian in a past life. And so he Cute. wrote Yeah, yeah. And so he wrote to the Daily Mail in nineteen eighty four, it does indeed seem wrong that people with whom it was the first article of religion that their mortal remains should lie undisturbed until the day of resurrection should be hauled forth, stripped and broken up. If one puts the question to those engaged in excavation, the answer is a shrug of the shoulders and a remark to the effect that they died a long while ago. But what is time to the dead? To them, waking or sleeping, 10,000 years or a nap after dinner, must be one and the same thing. So that's a writer's perspective. I think there's kind of a literary moment that, that deals with this, too. No, there really is, because... The true origin of the curse is in the literature of the time. This idea of a curse is very much a 19th century invention. So in 1827, The Mummy, our tale of the 22nd century. What? Right? It was written by Jane Webb, and it's widely considered the first mummy story. And it takes place in the 22nd century, England. It features this advanced society. Women are wearing pants. Wow. But it's also morally bankrupt. And it falls to this Egyptian mummy that is reanimated by scientists, very a la Frankenstein, Mm. by galvanized batteries. She was actually inspired after attending an unwrapping event near Piccadilly Circus. Oh, I wonder if she saw the mediums while she was there. And also by Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So in this, the hideous, revived Cheops is not a shuffling around mummy like you would think of it. But he's actually like giving advice on politics and life to those who befriend him. So that's a actually really interesting example of a female science fiction writer. Writing one of the first pieces of science fiction. You know, like I think of women at this time as writing like little women or things like that. Like Louisa May Alcott? Yeah. She also had a mummy story. So she wrote in 1869, Lost in a Pyramid, where an explorer inside a pyramid uses a mummified princess as a torch. Shut up. No symbolism. Okay. Okay. And by its light steals a gold box containing three strange seeds. Mummy wheat. Exactly. And back home in America, he gives the seeds to his fiancée who plants them. Now they grow, and she takes the flowers, and as she inhales their scent, she transforms into a living mummy. Yeah, that's not an allegory. So not to let women outdo him, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle had several stories related to this, including Lot Lot number 249 and The Ring of Thoth. 
So in Lot 249, there's a mummy that's animated to conduct the vengeful will of a modern black magician. <laughs> and this is where we get that idea of the iconic, like, reanimated, bandaged corpse. I'm sorry, what kind of magician? A black magician. Like Aleister Crowley? Yes. What's the mummy do? And seeks vengeance for his English master. Okay, so we're not going to call that basis for my crazy ass theory. We're just <laughs> going to continue with this this line of thinking. Well, and in it, he even takes the Englishman and really like kind of tries to put him down by saying that the Arabs, as if he had been born and nursed and weaned among them, you'll find that your filthy Egyptian tricks won't answer in England. God damn. So Bram Stoker also wrote an Egyptian story called The Jewels of the Seven Stars. Guy Boothby wrote Pharaohs the Egyptians in 1898. And Richard Marsh wrote The Beetle in 1897. Which wasn't a mummy, but there was this weird, like, anthropomorphic, demonic scarab. I read, like, a lot about this, and I really want to read it now. And it's like... London struck by this biblical plague and he's like out seeking vengeance and it even outsold Dracula at the time. Wow. And so Elise Bolfin wrote this amazing thesis on the fiction of Gothic Egypt and the British imperial paranoia. Talking about how all of this really came about and when England was very active in Egypt. There had been this fascination with rebuilding the canal of the pharaohs starting with Napoleon. Originally, it connected the Red Sea with the Nile. So in 1854, Ferdinand de Lesseps, the former French consul to Cairo, secured an agreement with the Ottoman governor of Egypt to build a canal 100 miles across the Isthmus Suez. And an international team of engineers drew up a construction plan. And this became the... Suez Canal. Exactly. And it was opened in 1869. So initially, the British were very against it. They saw it as altering global trade and, of course, their power of the sea. Now, they cited that they were against all this forced labor that was being used to create the Suez Canal. They even, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They <laughs> even sent armed Bedouins to cause an uprising. Now, of course, they had a really short-term memory and forgot that they used the same kind of labor to build the Egyptian railway, but whatever. But in 1875, Great Britain did become the largest shareholder in the Suez Canal Company and bought up stock from the new Ottoman governor of Egypt. And this question, this question of how to handle Egypt, this bridge between the West and their Eastern Empire, became a real problem. And it was even called the Egypt Question and was really debated very hotly and every circle the suez canal became known as the imperial spinal cord oh that's so interesting the german chancellor otto von bismarck summed up the relationship between egypt and the british empire as egypt is of the utmost importance to england on account of the suez canal the shortest line of communication between the eastern and western halves of the europe this is like the spinal cord which connects the backbone with the brain now, an important thing to note about spinal cord is that it is a huge vulnerability. If you were to cut the spinal cord, the brain is disconnected from the rest of the body. And this caused a great amount of anxiety among Imperial England. 
Now, also at this time, you have Egyptian uprisings trying to oppose this control of Egypt by foreigners, and they even established a provisional government. Seven years later, in 1882, Britain invaded Egypt, beginning this long occupation. And really, they had some kind of controlling presence until 1956. So, Tutankhamun was discovered at the time of this handover to Egyptian nationalist government. This time where there was conspiracies and assassinations of British officials in Cairo. And you never knew what knowledge the natives might be able to use against you. It's not hard to extrapolate that this might be seen as one more weapon in their arsenal. Right. This is something that they were protecting their land or their people from millennia ago. So in this time from 1869, when the canal opened and continuing to gain momentum, there were more and more stories about vengeful, supernatural, ancient Egyptian forces in civilized, rational, modern England. And you can see these as like this symbolic idea, this desire to control the Suez Canal, but also knowing that anxiety, that there's this fear that at any time the Egyptians could have an uprising and take over. So also an interesting thing is that in these tales, there was also an idea of this kind of like romantic mummy. I beg your pardon? Right, they have this encounter between a beautiful female mummy and some great imperial Englishman. Oh my god, excuse me, my eyes roll out of my head. Right? You know, it of course inspired this passion. But of course this passion was a doomed passion. Oh no, how dreadfully romantic. And you can see this in Bram Stoker's The Jewel of Seven Stars or H.D. Everett's Iris, A Mystery published in 1896 where an English Egyptologist and the revived Princess Iris is doomed from the outset by a curse which pursues the ill-fated lovers across England. No! And of course you can look at that imagery of the perfectly preserved dead female corpse. Oh, yeah. You could. You could look at that or you could go listen to the Bride episode, or the murder ballad episode, or this is way the... too common. Why does everybody want women to be dead all the time? Ew, guys. Ew. It's not hard to see the British anxiety in these stories. This desire to have Egypt, this extremely valuable area, this spinal cord of the empire, and also the fears and anxieties associated with it. What happens if you lose this? What happens if you lose the strategic position? So a great example is in Boothby's Pharaohs the Egyptian, where you have first an acknowledgement of colonial wrongdoings, because in this story they, of course, steal the mummy, and you see the mummy that comes back says, your father stole me from the land of my birth and from the resting place the gods decreed for me. And then, of course, a threat for revenge but beware for retribution is pursuing you. And then the notion of this retribution penetrating the heart of the empire. Retribution is even now close upon your heels. And in this, you have the main character just pontificating about this, such as cigar in hand, I stopped in my walk and looked at it, the mummy case. 
thinking as I did so of the country from which it had hailed, and of the changes that had taken place in the world during the time it had lain in the Thibian tomb. Only the most privileged person in the world can pontificate upon that while holding a cigar and gazing at the exhibit in a museum. Let's just start there. But now, the pharaoh's goal in this story is, of course, the annihilation of the European race. Oh, racial anxiety, aren't you fun? Yes, there's a huge element of that as well. The Egyptian beast, the Western woman making the mistake of marrying the Oriental. This was just fiction, purely plain and simple. It was not actually being used in a court of law at the time. Right, so in this, you see this these anxieties about the loss of the Suez Canal, about the fall of the empire, just as the Egyptian empire had eventually fallen. So there was this fear that if the Egyptians ever woke up and realized what they had, the British could lose what they'd worked so hard to take from other people. And that was really represented by this kind of fervent, Egyptian nationalism that was on the rise throughout the archaeological exploration of Egypt. Right. You can see this just deep identification between this fallen civilization and what could happen to the British Empire. And interestingly enough, in the 50s, there is this botched attempt to retake the Suez Canal. And it's often considered the symbolic moment of the death of the British Empire. Egypt will be the death of us yet. Oh, yes, it will if you keep poking it. Now, another interesting thing that has happened over the last few years is that Egypt has tried to get many of its artifacts back. Some people have complied and some have not. They've created a list of artifacts they want to get back, including the Rosetta Stone from the British Museum, the bust of Nefertiti from Germany, many other things. Something one that we saw in Boston. Boston. And some of these really important pieces of Egyptian history, I just don't know if they'll ever get back. But there are so many pieces of mummies and artifacts that are still circulating on the black market. And countries are trying to send these back to Egypt if they can. They could send the Rosetta Stone back. It's not actually being used as a cornerstone for a building (laughs) kind of but even in 2016 there was a u.s raid to try to collect egyptian artifacts and this was called operation mummy's curse Uh -uh. in new york and they were able to get hundreds of egyptian artifacts to send back to egypt and now the foreign minister of egypt said that each of these artifacts Return today tells a story, a human story, our story. History comes alive when someone is able to not only read about the past, but is also able to visit the historic sites, watch and enjoy the artifacts, appreciate the images, and see the actual writings of our ancestors. And maybe the idea that these pieces of important cultural history this heritage has been pillaged and taken out of a country represents the real curse associated with the mummy. When you have something that fascinating and that beautiful, that captivating, everyone wants it for themselves, but you can't have it. It belongs to us all. You know, it really tells our story. 
but it belongs in the place where it was found. Very true. And that's not just a story. No. The Curse of King Tut may be just a story, but that is not. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.